Oh, now, Stephen, did you have nails for breakfast? What's the matter? Did you miss me? I miss you. I, I miss you like a, a hog miss slop. I miss you like a like a baby miss a titty. I miss you like a, a, a rock in my shoe. But why is this nigga on his name? Whoa, 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 Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. Let's keep it funny here. Django's a freeman. I understand, but it's no fault. What is the name of my horse? Grasshopper. Listen here, Mr. Grasshopper. I'll go ahead and snatch you off that horse before you head spin so fast. Steven, you old decrepit bastard. Now listen. Django here, the slaver. It's different. Y'all two is y'all to hate each other. This nigga on the name? That motherfucker right there. I understand why I gotta take lip from him, but I don't understand why I gotta take lip from this, this nigga on the name. I don't need you to understand, Steven. What I need you to do is solve the problem of getting in the house and showing our guest here some hospitality. Now there's two rooms in the big house. I want you to get them ready. Oh, hold on, Bo. He's staying in the big house? Well, yes, Steven. Where else would you have me put them? Well, do you have a problem with that, Steven? <laughs> no, I ain't, I ain't got no, no, no problem, Mr. Candy, but unless you plan on burning the sheets and burning the house and burning the dog and just burning and everything. And that's my problem. It's mine to burn. Your problem is getting in and getting the goddamn guest bedrooms ready. Yes, sir, Miss Okay. Steven? Believe the lip on that boy? I do say, sir. I do say. Where's that beautiful sister of mine? There she is! Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! Oh, my darling, you are a tonic for tired eyes. the fuck is up internet welcome to that is the fucking trailer i am mr royal as you see myself 904 next to me we have i am dirt and godfrey before we get into the show just wanted to say apologies for the delay on the last episode's highlights and it's looking like this episode is going to be released a little bit beyond the time our, our normal thursday release date uh there has been some pc issues uh but they are being corrected by the shit are we allowed to does he would he want a shout out he would, but we'll do it right now. We'll just. Okay, there it is. Thank you. Awesome. Save you. <laughs> All right. And uh, speaking of PC issues, this is not a free venture as much as we love doing it. So check us out on patreon.com slash TTFT show. And, and also, David, not only Patreon. What else? What are we doing this week? We have a anchor exclusive. Bring them up again, guys. Tell them why we're doing this. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, we just said this for the Anchor-only listening audience, but I guess now that we are live on the YouTube A's, we'll let you know that we are now on uh, anchor.fm slash TTFT show, where you can hear 
the whole episode, the whole recording of the episode, uncensored, uncut, uh, all the things that happen in between, our camera resets, and all of that good stuff, and they, those, those go live shortly after we are done recording, so you get them a little bit early, audio only. According to Anchor, I have not had a chance to fact check this, but I believe you, you will be able to find us by searching uh, on any place that you find your, your podcasts. I uh, mainly remember seeing Spotify and uh, Apple or iTunes. Droid. So, or just go to anchor.fm slash show and be sure to follow us on there. Speaking of following, even if you don't have the funds to be a patron on Patreon, you can still support what we are doing by hitting subscribe, hitting like, sharing what we're doing to uh, help our audience members grow so we can inch a little bit closer towards monetization on YouTube. Meaning, so thank you. really just get paid for what we're doing. Please. Not so much, too much to ask guys for. No, it's crazy. It's absurd. I believe that's all the uh, announcements that I had for Hello Internet. So you have anything before we move on? No, because we, well, what we're doing is moving on up to the east side. What we're trying to get our piece of the pie. <laughs> I, I Fish don't, don't fry in the kitchen. <laughs> you want you're bringing that up again? Well, I'm, I'm better Giving now. Giving me an excuse. I, I'm to better cut now. That I, moment I, I, into this episode. Well, I'm better now. This. I'm okay. fine with that. You you saw what happened before. I had the music playing in my head. Fish don't fry in the kitchen. <laughs> this uh, let, well, I'll start it. No, I'm gonna take it. All, I got you. Okay, guys. This week we are bringing to you Django Unchained, and for my, all all my non-spelling bee winners and reading and comprehension ple- people who achieve overachieved, Django is the wrong uh, interpretation of it. It is Django Unchained. The D is silent. Uh, filmed by the great uh, Quentin Tarantino. It's what our fourth Tarantino film. Third was. It feels like our seventh for some I mean, reason. It's at least twelve hours of Tarantino films. I mean, but rightfully so. I mean, he's he's been here every moment, but you know that was there before. But God said, this week we're bringing you Django Unchained, film starring Jamie Foxx, Jamie Foxx, Christoph Waltz. The, I mean, I, I I want I, I shouldn't stop there, but I am going to stop there because if we start naming all the people in the film who really did their thing, and that's me omitting one motherfucking Sam Jack. I mean, I'm not even omitting him. I'm just letting you know, guys, that. We are getting ready to take a, a trip down slavery lane, and and it's. I'll just say this, and I'll let you go. Okay. I'll do the pitch just like this. There is one film. This is a family slavery film. That would be my pitch. Okay. You can let your child or an adult watch this. Like, no, whatever, whatever your interpretations on what slavery is, right, wrong, up, down, in the middle, you should be able to watch this and have a discussion. Go. Before we toss it over to Brandon Carlos with the elevator pitch for this one, we. Uh, Samuel Jackson uh, broke it down, I think, in the quickest and simplest way possible. In an interview, he described it as shaft on a horse. I disagree with him on that, but yeah, he, he did say that. <laughs> I mean, it's not much I disagree with. You're wrong. Come on. Come um, on. Did you read the whole script, Sam? I love you, brother. Speaking of amazing people that made this film come to life, later on in the episode, we will be talking to uh, William Clark, the assistant director, uh, Quentin Tarantino's go-to assistant director. Um, Thank you for not calling him an AD. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> and we'll also be talking to uh, Laura Cayouette and mm. Escalante Lundy, who are both stars in the film. Mm. Um, all right, let's hear it from Mr. Carlos. Normally known as Special K, but for this week, we're just going with Mr. Carlos. And I, I know you guys know why. No case this episode. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another special segment we like to call an elevator pitch. You know his name, you know his game. Hey, Brandon, take us away. All right, guys. So 
this movie has like the best opening superhero soundtrack song that's ever existed. Django! So the movie starts out in typical Tarantino fashion where you get the credits before the movie. Then you get to Dark Night. Two slave drivers, like a line of dudes just walking through the middle of Texas somewhere. A little paddy wagon thing dude just like chugging along on a horse and he gets closer and he gets closer and he gets closer and the dude's around. They're like, what the fuck? I'm Dr. King Schultz and this is my horse, Fritz. I love that fucking horse. Probably the stole every scene he was in, in my opinion. People die. Schultz buys Django and then like immediately frees him. By the way, don't drink and smoke a lot of drugs in college because if you're a history major, you'll end up studying antebellum history and it's a fucking nightmare. Wait, I didn't even say the movie we were fucking doing. God damn it. Eh, fuck it. Uh, Django and Schultz rain. Oh! Why can't I do this right? What the fuck is. Anyway, so as I was saying. Dude, I legitimately <laughs> thought you died. froze. I thought, <laughs> I thought the Zoom froze for a second. I knew he didn't froze it. I thought he were weekend at parties on this. He was just like. <laughs> <laughs> Gotcha. Schultz and Django ride through the night and into the morning. God, I forgot the most important part of this whole scene. People are completely, like, utterly destroyed by the fact that Django's riding a horse. Anyway, so they get to this town, they're in the bar, they come out, uh, like, surrounded by everybody in the, like, town is, like, around this bar, like, hey, you know, fuck. We're gonna fucking kill these dudes if they don't come out of that bar. Schultz is really good at just like not getting shot for the most part in this film. Then there's a canyon sh after they figure that shit out and he's like, after you're done helping them find the brittles, you're free and have, do whatever the fuck you want. Here's some money, like, you'd be good to go. Fucking deal. You guys aren't interacting with me. I need you to interact with me. <laughs> we're, no, we're li <laughs> This is a complete train wreck. Now, now, now you're, you're doing good, man. Go. No, seriously, please. You're doing good. You're doing good. <laughs> <laughs> Validate me! No, 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 no. You're right. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, shit. Oh, yeah, they gotta go find the Brittle Brothers. So... <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna go straight to the arugula plantation because i don't know what the fuck i i can't pronounce that name fuck big daddy i fucking love that that's so awesome uh so you get to big daddy's plantation and he looked like how do i put that? he looked like colonel sanders like fucked Another version of Colonel Sanders. <laughs> another version. Uh, yes. Another actor playing Colonel Sanders. Yes. And, uh, yes. <laughs> Big Daddy. <laughs> okay. We can do this, guys. I promise. We can. We can get through this. They're going there under the false pretenses that like they're there to like do some shit or spend some money as far as like slave trading or whatever goes because that's basically they do that a few times they, they give you flashbacks of Django and his wife since you just learned about her them being like basically like abused the fuck out of like when they were slaves trying to run away from Big John anyway what had happened was is <laughs> she takes Django around the um the plantation just showing things and he spots Big John whipping somebody for Breaking an egg? Like some bullshit. 
And this is the weird character, because Big John's got fucking, like, weird Bible verses, like, stapled to his jackets and shit. Uh, why? Django walks up and without, like, missing a beat, shoots that motherfucker and they're like, whatever. And he's like, I like the way you die, boy. And I was like, get his ass. Little Raj looks, he's the, he's obviously the goofiest motherfucker and his name's Little Raj. Talking about Fumbelina? Fumbelina. Django, like, whips the fucking shit out of this dude, walks up, kills him. Bang, bang, bang. Which is dope. Everybody comes freaking out. Schultz is like, hey, uh, we're bounty hunters. Uh, yeah, so let me grab some papers to, like, talk my way the fuck out of this real quick. Talks his way the fuck out of it real quick. So, <laughs> this is the, this is the, uh, <clears throat> this gets to like the Jonah Hill bit, <laughs> leads us right to the Jonah Hill bit. I can't fucking see shit out of this thing. <laughs> There's a montage now. Time moves pretty weirdly in this film, and I like that. Like, like when you're watching Django, like, you get, like, six months of content in, like, the first hour. <laughs> and then the last hour and a half is literally one scene. Schultz is like, yo, uh, how about you roll with me for the winter, through the winter we'll make a lot of money, then we'll go to Greenville and do what we gotta do. So... They're doing this one-off bounty or whatever, and, like, Django has a problem with shooting some dude in front of his son. And then Schultz goes through this whole, like, really, like, very logical line of thinking. Then Django ends up shooting him. Papa? I never got a... I never saw the kid. I didn't really care. Uh, I, I wasn't, like, an emotional... Wrong point of view for me to give a shit about the kid. <laughs> anyway... Smitty recalls seven grand was, I guess, Django's first by himself hitman bounty capture collection. Convoluted. Procurement. Procrastination. Proceed. This is a cool part after this where you get to, like, uh, the quick draw practice, just shooting dicks off snowmen. Bang, bang, bang. Then you get Schultz and Django just murdering a whole fucking gang of dudes on horses, which is pretty fun. And that's the end of the winter, and they give you a title card where it's like, all right, and then we go to Mississippi. Brunhilde's been sold to the Candies, and the Candies is a plantation that no one wants to end up at. It's not a good place to be. Steven loves being there. Oh, yeah. This is Candyland! <laughs> Uh, so we're finally at Candyland, you get the weird interaction with DiCaprio and his sister, and you learned about how Brunhilde like, speaks German earlier, and so they're finally there. Steven comes out, of, comes out of the house, and he's very concerned that Django is on a horse. And then, after they get Brunhilde out of the hot box because she tried to run away, and God damn it, how many people tried to run away when I was gone? Does nobody respect me? No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> She's eh. It's great. And that's a very sweet moment. And then all fucking hell breaks loose for the rest of the goddamn movie. Steven's like <laughs> You know him? She's like, no, but he knew because her reaction was trash. So they basically get caught and then there's this weird like interaction with Steven and uh Candy where it's like, uh so um I need to talk to you about the dessert. It's fucking dessert, Steven. What could possibly be going wrong? Yeah, I ju you just need to come back here. And then finally, Steven convinces him to like, and then Steven ends up being right and like twirling a fucking whiskey, just straight chilling. He was looking like Dr. Claw in that whole scene. Like, 
What the fuck is he doing, bro? I feel like he needed to do like yeah. <laughs> the reveal. Candy's like, okay, I know what to do. We'll just do a little good old fashioned stick him up. Everybody goes back to the dining room because that's where like poof, half this fucking movie is. But I digress. So. Got it. <laughs> so we're back in the diner, the dining room, the, the room of the where people eat. Here we go. <laughs> What's his name? Butch popped out of the fucking something with like two sawed-offs. Like he's just like yo, and then they're just like ah. Slams his hand down on the table, cuts his hand. By the way, everybody's smoking red apples this whole time. There does not another cigarette that exists. Blood everywhere, blood all over his face. He's like, so you're gonna buy her for $12,000? Fuck, I guess. Schultz is sitting there, and like, while Candy's like signing and stamping and signing and stamping things. And Schultz is sitting there, and he's like having flashbacks to seeing that dude rip, get ripped apart by that dog. And like, there's a heart playing Beethoven in the back. And so he like gets up and he like walks up to. He's like, he like basically just walks up to this hard player. He's like, if you fucking keep playing Beethoven, I'm gonna kill you. And this is where Candy like realizes like, hey, I can fucking just, uh, he's gonna fucking walk balls first. That is what Candy's about to do. Candy's walking balls first. He's like, you know, in the Chickasaw County, you know that it deals and it isn't actually a deal. Do you shake my hand? You little fuck. I beat you. And he goes up to shake uh, Candy's hand in that cool ass fucking pocket jacket gun just ba-bang shoots him right in the flower candy's dead he died like an idiot it was wonderful butch turns around and just like shotguns fucking schultz and then for the rest of the movie people were just dying until the very end whenever <laughs> whenever they're outside Django and uh Django and um brunhilde are outside and the fucking plantation's on fire and that's the movie hey brandon man bang up job brother yeah, it was something. All right, guys, you know what time it is. It is time for our deep motherfucking dive. Dave, take us away. We do our research. We do our research on Django Unchained. Django Unchained was released on Christmas Day 2012 in the United States. Other films that came out around this time were Les Mis, also released on Christmas Day. On the Road, released on the 21st. Jack Reacher came out on the 21st as well. <laughs> So did uh, Judd Apatow's This Is 40. On this, on the, around this day, in this month of 2012, this was a uh, Tuesday, the 25th. Uh, we were going to see this film just a few days after getting a new lease on life. For those that were old enough to remember, we recently survived the end of the world, according to many interpretations of the Mayan calendar that was set to take place on December 21st of that year. If you were born around this time, there's a very probable chance that your name is either Jacob, Jacob or Emma Stone. In December of 2012, Google began selling $99 laptops. On December 20th of that year, Apple tried to achieve and was denied a patent for the pinch-to-zoom gestures on mobile phones. Okay, I'm sorry, real quick. See, that's the shit that gets buried in the world. All you fucking iPhone users out there. Oh, no, it's so much better. It's so much better. Yeah, but y'all so late to the patent office. Y'all yeah. wanted to... There were a lot of facts, but I specifically chose that one because fuck hey man, Apple. That's, hey, that's, I don't... The, that's your best one ever. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, fist pump. Oh, get in there. All right. There's some aggression behind that fist pump. Yeah, I'm ready for this. <laughs> uh, it was this month that Size Gangnam Style became the first video to reach 1 billion views on YouTube. Which we also did on Manson Lane. I did a little. We're, we're close. <laughs> 
Oh, you're talking about the, the not the views, the dance. The dance, okay. yeah, yeah, we're yeah. nowhere near the views. The dance, <laughs> I was all the way on. On December 27th, NASA unveiled a plan to capture a 500-ton asteroid in 2025, and we're getting close to that, so we should probably... Quick question. How the... I mean, on some real shit, how the fuck did they know how much it weighed? Did somebody go up there with a big-ass scale, and they go, oh, no, bro, you didn't go to NASA, neither the fuck did you? Who went question. up there with a big-ass scale and, like, sitting on this, and, you no, know, by diameter and mass? Those sound like made-up fucking, you know... Yeah, they eyeballed it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right, the budget and income for Django Unchained. With a budget of $100 million, Tarantino's most expensive film, Django Unchained uh, brought in over $30 million in its first weekend in the USA with a total worldwide box office gross of over $425 million to date. It runs at 2 hours and 45 minutes. It was filmed in Louisiana, Louisiana, California, and Wyoming from January to July of 2012. The final draft of the script was dated April 26, 2011. So that's all you really need to know about the background and the world that Django Unchained came into. Hey, do you have four? Four what? Because we're about to connect. It's time for connections. And that's what I'm talking about. Not on the sports thing, not connections. We're talking about connections. You know when you put two things together that never people never thought would work, but they actually work. Who would have thought? It's like... The, the first, the, the electric glory hole, thank God for it. Like you put something into a, a hole with two little hard things and it makes magic. Glory holes, man. I really love this connection. So here we go. Let's start off with this, guys. At the very beginning of the film, we have, we meet Dr. King Schultz. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, literally, I mean, a two-year-old could understand they did the Dr. King reference. Thank you, Tarantino, for being uh, inclined to write. Or whoever came up with the idea and rewrites whenever. Thank you so much. But that's not where I'm going. Dr. Schultz. Uh, makes you think of uh, it, it, it resembles uh, the thing when, hey you have a foot problem you go to Dr. Uh, Schultz you know yeah, what I'm saying yeah. but what was the foot problem they had fucking chains on their feet at the beginning of the film connections well, go, um, Tarantino has a foot problem for, uh, he does too so oh that's triple untoldra un, un yeah. not untondra untoldra Boy, I'm glad this fucking food poisoning went away. I have been on all cylinders since the food yeah, poisoning glad to have you back thank you sir Jesus Christ stay away from Publix uh potato salad okay there were a lot of action scenes in this film but there was one scene that that dated every 90s and 2000 movie ever and we talked about this a few moments ago is when god damn it you would have thought he was in a long kiss good night when fucking sam jackson like when K calvin candy dies and he 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 wasn't even in the way of the gun he throws himself yeah. in the way of the other guy like calvin but that's not the connection the connection goes to boys in the hood how Ricky, but not just Ricky. Cuba Gooden Jr. was Ricky's brother in that, and Cuba Gooden Jr. Uh, wanted to be in this oh, film, and he was so turned bad. down. He wanted it and so bad. And there's my connection. Bro, yo, this is what we do. This is what the fuck I do. He didn't just want it. He oh, he was like, I think it was like he was giving money to like a political campaign just to do it. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We are now talking about. <clears throat> we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about Superman versus Super German. And what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Christopher Reeves versus Christopher Waltz. Uh, as you'll figure out that, uh, all jokes aside, Christopher Reeves, years ago, everybody knows the story of Superman, and he was paralyzed from a, now he wasn't just normally riding a horse, he was doing the event to where they, you know, they jump and do all those things of that nature. So. Mm -hmm. Um, Christopher uh, Christopher Walsh, however, he was actually, no, most people don't know this, you only see him riding the horse for maybe 2-3% of the film because it's mentioned that, as we'll talk about later, he got hurt. So to me, it's a very eerie feeling that most people don't talk about that 
he, yeah, he was just bucked off a horse, horse. He broke his pelvis. Like, no. I mean, I'm pretty sure the pelvis is close to the fucking spine. We're fucking two inches away from yeah. that shit. Like, no actor ever being able to ride a horse again. Yeah. And, right, and, and busted see, his ass. You know what? On that one, I'll end it there. Okay. Solid connection. Thank, Thank you, brother. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> and it, it's Kristoff. I said that. I said Christopher. Fucking Mr. Reeves, man. It's the Reeves effect. in this contract. <laughs> <laughs> Hear me out. This is, these are our theories, our thoughts, our uh, musings about the film that we are discussing today, that being Django Unchained. I have, I have one general idea. It's not really a theory. It's more so just this is what it means. Uh, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Uh, I think my mind's pretty badass. I'm going to let you go first. Okay. <laughs> not that you're not it's badass. It's okay. bad. It's not badass. Um, when I was watching the movie, I realized that this is a, this is, other than the fact that it's obviously a, a morality story revolving around racism and specifically racism in the history of America, but I realized that watching it today that it was, um, more, even more so than that, it was a story about what overcomes racism or what, not even what overcomes it, because the racism still exists, but what trumps racism, where racism takes a backseat to these two things. And the two things I noticed were money, like at uh, Big Daddy's farm, he is completely hostile to them, to, to specifically Django, until uh, Dr. Schultz pulls out the 5,000 reasons why he wants to talk to them. And in an instant, you see his demeanor change. Now, he's still a racist, uh, no doubt about it, but he becomes accommodating to this man, this black man, that he was just hostile to because of money. That's the, That was the only thing that changed in that instant. And there was a few occasions where, where money was able to at least put a Band-Aid on the gaping hole. And then love... On the, on the complete flip side of it, it was like you, what you saw Django willing to do and the character that he was willing to become specifically in front of Calvin Candy, even more specifically when, the, when he stops Dr. Schultz's interjection and insists that that, that guy, that, that the slave get uh, mauled by the dogs, like that was, all, that was for love. He was willing to not become a racist, but step deep into the shoes of a racist and be at least adjacent to a racist act for the sake of uh, being reunited with the with his wife. So that that's what I took from it this go around that it was it was more than just a story about racism, but that racism is really just a a weak trait that could easily take a backseat to more. Um, to, to more positive virtues uh, like love or um, surface level virtues like money. I like that. I, I just really quick, just to uh, respond to what you just said. I think I didn't think of it that way, but the, I, I do like that because it makes people say, what's your price? Like racism has a price apparently. And at the end of the day, who does he... Who does he... Okay, Don't do sorry, it. sorry. It's okay, I saw what you were doing there. Well, at least we're on the same page and reading the same book. Behold a pale horse. Uh, with that being said, uh, uh, to me, I'm going to jump right into it because he knows exactly where I'm going. To me, this might... Hear me out was my theory on this is what... A lot, this rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Like, I, I did the research on this as far as when Spike Lee and... and uh, <clears throat> 
Samuel Jackson are really good friends. They were together on school days and several other projects together. And with that being said, Spike Lee hated this, and 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 Samuel Jackson basically told him to shut the fuck up. I mean, because friends can talk to each other like that, and they are friends. But it got so heated that to the point to where that it was Sam Jackson's wife and 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 Spike Lee's wife that got them actually talking again. And, you, and that that's a fact. Like, and, and you know how guys are prized there. Like, no, I feel mm-hmm. this way. I feel that way. Well, I mean, hey, like, that's the reason why they call people on the front line and people behind the line. Like, we all got to play our part to make sure this thing works. If, if we're only doing it one way, it's never going to work. So with that being said, to me, this, what I truly loved about the film and what I had to say my theory was is that it, what my theory wasn't about the film, my theory was about the person who wrote the film, the person who directed the film in, in Quentin Tarantino. I think he sought out to exploit differences, make fun of racism, but I'm not even going, I'm not even going to just stop it there. I'm going to go a little bit deeper. This could have been so easily done another way, and it almost was done another way. He initially, he initially wanted Will Smith for the role. Will Smith wanted to do it, but Will Smith's breaking point, which was, I thought his breaking point would have been, I just did Wild Wild West. I never wanted to be in a fucking hat again. I thought that would have been, I love you, Will. I thought that would have been Will's breaking point, but his breaking point was, like, come on, Quentin, man. I, I got the, the, the Django has to get the bad guy in. And, and to, to Quentin's perspective, like, you want the actor so bad, but you stuck to the story, and that's what made it beautiful, because what most people don't see is, at the end of the day, he put a quash to that whole black-on-black crime thing or white-on-white crime, and people were like, how could you say that? I just don't, I, I don't get He could have easily let uh, Django kill Calvin Candy. That's the easy way out. That's the ball rolling around on the, the rim and falling down. He showed you that crime is crime and murder is murder. A white man killed a white man, and a black man. But the bigger payoff was seeing just uh, uh, Django kill Stephen. Yeah, him killing killing Calvin is all right. It's, it's, a, it's a good move. Mm-hmm. Him killing. No, nah, you right where you belong, Stephen. And then, and then Christoph Waltz's character, Mr. Schultz, Doctor Schultz, like he literally he he literally despised this pig so much, and I mean pig only not from a a police standpoint. I'm telling you, Pig, from he literally looked at Calvin Candy like he was a fucking animal. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to touch him. He was despised by him. And he was like, you well, if you insist, I shake your hand. So, yeah, to me, that was my theory that, that Quentin Tarantino went out of his way to say, okay, you know what, let's stop playing. Or at least, if, if, if I'm a speaker, let's talk about it. If I'm a writer, let's write about it. He, he put it in your face. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my, that's my theory. Yeah, I like that. But, it's, but like, I think he... I, I, Django Unchained reminds me of um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm. or the vi- vice versa, the way Quentin Tarantino used a fictional story to course correct history. And because with Django, you get this awesome vigilante in this in like the days right before the Civil War, and you get to see him kick the sh- kick white ass hard. And like, like they, the first... set, they set up the whole movie like. These are clearly the bad guys, and then by the end of it, you get to just Dude, like bathe in the. Blood. I never thought I'd see a person use a whip better than Indiana Jones in my fucking life, <laughs> and then Django happened. And then the uh, the same thing with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You're cheering for the murders at the end because he's course correcting history again, where they're killing the the people that were uh, that that committed the Manson family murders. There, you get to watch them become the victims. So I tell, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely, man. So, hey, guys, those were our hear me out theories about Django Unchained. Man, we gotta change this song there. Oh, my Hulkamanius! You gotta start giving me the Hulkamanius. You hear me, brother? Hear me out. Hear me out, man. Hear me out, man. <laughs> yeah, I like that. There we go. Working while we're working.
All right, let's move on to casting call. All right, you go first. All right, um, who do you want to do first? Calvin, Dr. Uh, Schultz, I can now shake. I, I just saw your screen. Move it, move it. I don't want to fucking see it. Uh, all right, so all right, since I saw your screen, tell me, uh, not tell me, you choose a character first, and I'll tell you who all to done. All right, let's do uh, Calvin Candy first. Calvin Candy, who would I want to have seen do, do it? And I know this may be a cop-out for me, but um, I'd want to see Tom Hanks do it. Because here's the thing. I, it's only certain white people I trust doing certain roles. Yeah. I trust Tom. Yeah, that would have been, that, that could have easily shifted his career and brought on like a whole, he doesn't need a whole new life to his career, but I mean, I would have been interested to see what he would have I mean, done he's taken that. on a lot of things in life. Yeah. He even took on AIDS. He hasn't taken on racism yet. I'm just waiting. What, can we get one? <laughs> took on COVID. Yeah, yeah, he he Apollo. He took on the moon. Like, what the fuck? The astro. <laughs> I'm sorry, Tom. Hey, man, we're a fan. Really big. Come on, man. You did big. We'll give you a pass. Fuck it. Uh, my pick was uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt for mm. Calvin Candy. That's the second just, time you chose him for something to replace someone. This, uh, in the first he, two seasons. He is, uh, he's versatile. I think he could have done it, and I, and I think he could have done it respectfully, as respectfully as a character like that could be portrayed. I think he could have been trusted with that character. Gotcha. I like it. Next character, tell me. Um, who the hell we got? Uh, Dr. Dr. Schultz. Dr. Schultz. This, in order to play this role of Dr. Schultz, you got to make me believe that you truly do feel it. You got to make me believe that you can get in there and do it. And I get not. And I'm a sucker for doing this because it's my second time doing this um, in, in two seasons. It's not a cop out. I just truly like again. I really respect this person as an actor. Uh, I got. I got to go again. Woody Harrelson. I could see okay, him taking I can, it that serious. I could see him as that. Yeah. Taking Much it easier series. than Osiris. For sure. And man, let's not do that. Again. <laughs> We're doing really good right now. We're getting out our segments. Don't do that. But yeah, no. But yeah, I definitely would take Woody. And again, like, guys, money. Money Train's not a fucking comedy for Woody Harrelson. Like to me, that's it's almost like if you ever see if you ever saw Christian Bale and Martin and, and uh the, the fight not is it the fighter with him and um Mark Wahlberg? Yeah. Like to me, that's a that that's a PG thirteen Money Train's a PG thirteen version that like like Wesley Snipes looking. That's his Charlie is his, his, his wait a minute what, were both of them named Charlie? Don't, don't fuck don't, with me right now. Hey hey is. somebody. Hey. My mind's being fucking blown right now, man. But anyway, point being is that, yeah, dude, I would Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson could not make one good decision for his own benefit in Money Train. Just, just like, watch. just like, just like Christian Bale in the box. All right, fight, fight. Django. You for, oh my god! All right, all right. So again, like when you when you, here's the thing, knowing that Will Smith's supposed to do this, I wouldn't want to see Will Smith do this. Uh, I'm gonna tell you, I want to see is Django, and I feel horrible because. I'm not. I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna mispronounce his name, which is why I'm not doing it. It's Forrest Whitaker. I'm gonna stab you right in your neck. But but what I want you to do, is, is David, if you can pay this man a homage right now on the screen, this is the guy, and I've seen him in several films. He's in Boardwalk Empire. He's in The Wire. He's in Oz. Mr. Omar from The Wire. Would you please, Michael K. K Williams? Yes, okay. Michael Williams. Michael M. K. Okay. No, MK. MK Ultra. <laughs> there you go. So, oh, I like that. There you go. Hey, pale, uh, behold the pale horse, MK Ultra. We're dropping all the bombs to make sure we don't. Listen, we are not going to get monetized. Making, we're not getting, yeah, right. Hit yeah, up so. that Patreon. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah that's, I can see that. I really wanted that. Because, again, remember, he, I don't want a pretty boy actor. Will's too pretty for me. He's a pretty, and I'm not saying he can't get gritty. Will can get gritty, but come on. Welcome to Miami. Mm. Parents just don't understand. Versus... It's dark as like damn it. It's dark as dark. Hell, it's hot. Like, 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 I mean, flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. 
but yeah, that's my dude right there, man. I, I, he, and, and, and he really is one of the most underrated actors out there, by the way. I, I could agree with that because you seem to speak highly of him, and I don't really know too much of a reference to... When have you heard me speak highly of any actor other than myself? Uh, Robert Downey Jr.? Damn it. <laughs> All right, there's a few. And Jai, what's his name for some Man, reason? Man, fuck you, motherfucker. Don't you do that. <laughs> See, I, made a, I was drunk that night. My friend loved the movie, and I love my friend, and, and, and man, fuck that, man. Audience of TTFT, I'm here to let you know I'm, I'm, I'm here for you guys. <laughs> we almost did a movie called Blood and Bone this season, but I threw myself in front of that bullet. He's used one veto in two films and three shows. This is the first veto in five years. Good, good veto, though. Still um, with you, Michael my Django is Donald Glover. I think he could have pulled it off. Because I, I, I really think uh, Donald Glover's character that he portrays in This Is America is pretty much a simplified embodiment of Django. Uh, the the charisma, the style, the, the way he looked and carried himself. I think it, I, I could easily see him um, getting into that blue suit. I couldn't. No? I, I res- you know how much I respect him as an artist. I just, he's just he's just too pretty. What about I mean, Michael like, Jordan? B. Jordan? No. Not even Tari and J. Royal. And I'm not pretty enough. I'm just saying, like, Avery Ray. No. Here are the uh, the actors that were actually considered for Django. Yes. Him. Yep. Fuck yeah. Fuck I- yeah. Idris Elba? No. Yeah. Uh-oh. Thank you black community come for david now hey pounce, you pounce, know what pounce, that's not pounce. even a black thing that's like a british thing i don't i don't yeah black tea fucker uh idris elbow thank you idris. okay and <laughs> put a fucking two e's in front of it idris elba will smith uh he actually he declined it because uh django wasn't the lead of the movie and he wanted he passed on it for that reason against the advice of his agents and manager um, Chris Tucker, Terrence Howard, Michael Kenneth Williams. Oh, he was considered. Um, and oh. Tyrese Gibson. There you go. Yeah, you're uh, you're on the same page with the casting. Apparently, if he was considered, apparently he wasn't interested. And c- apparently, if they knew about him and I knew about him and you don't, there's another branch of films <laughs> for you to carve out here. I mean, me too, though. You brought me. Hey, you brought me the living way. Um, Denzel Washington was considered for the too role. old. Yep. That's what they said. Not, hey, I saw Equalizer. You still got it. They said, not me. Cuba Gooden Jr. lobbied for the role of Django, but Tarantino wouldn't even consider him. Gooden considered this to be the biggest disappointment of his career. Yet again, it's the Will Smith effect. You don't think fucking Quentin Tarantino saw Lightning Jack Flash? You'll never be allowed in another Western again, Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just laughed so sad. That, that was your real laugh. That's what yeah. your show laughed at. You, you generally were tickled by that. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. Go ahead. Uh, Christoph Waltz, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Samuel Jackson's parts were all written specifically for them. Uh, Zoe Bell and Lady Gaga were considered for the role of Laura Lee, Candy Fitzwilly. Which speaks to her acting prowess, Miss Laura Lee, because you beat out two people who had so many things going for them, and clearly your talent won out and scheduling. Thank you so much, ma'am. All right, guys. Now it is time for Pop Quiz Hot Shot. We have ten facts about Django Unchained. Going to start off with number 10, something that people are literally tired of hearing about in these lists of facts about Django Unchained. DiCaprio, oh, uh uh-oh. 
Starting with the most well-known in the scene where Calvin Candy smashes his hand on the dinner table, DiCaprio accidentally crushed a small stemmed glass with his palm and cut his hand up pretty good. The amazing thing is that he didn't break character and continued the scene with a bleeding hand resulting in a standing ovation upon calling cut with Tarantino so impressed that he used that take in the final print and even brought in fake blood to smear on Kerry Washington's face to really bring it home. A little bonus fact on that, <laughs> while slicing his hand had zero impact on his performance, Leonardo DiCaprio actually had to stop the scenes multiple times because he was having a difficult time using so many racial slurs. Samuel Jackson actually pulled him aside and told him, motherfucker, this is just another Tuesday for us. Translation, we hear motherfucker nigger with hard R. It keeps, it keeps your teeth white. Not to mention, like, stop being a bitch about having to hate black people, white man. I'm a black man that's been cast in a role that has to hate black I'm people. I'm playing Steven. Yeah. If I'm catching more heat than you're ever going to catch for this, I, I don't know, Sam, I'm just not feeling that. Motherfucker, what? We've been <laughs> at this table for three weeks. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> this was DiCaprio's first time playing a villain since 1998's The Man in the Iron Mask, and good goddamn was he villainous. I didn't even, you were, I saw that and I didn't even know that was him. I, didn't, I didn't even know who he was. Because he was under a mask the whole time. I'm just saying, but much. I didn't know who he was as an actor oh. before then. Basketball Diaries, I couldn't forget that. Alright, number 9, Son of a Gun. Russ Tamblin, star of 1965's Son of a Gunfighter, makes a cameo in the film alongside his daughter Amber Tamblin. In the credits, their characters are credited as son of a gunfighter and daughter of a son of a gunfighter. And if you guys don't know what scene that is, that is when they show her in the window when they are coming into town. And the reason why I resonate with that scene is because a certain someone to my camera, whatever this is, left, right, whatever you do, the movie magic, allowed me to be in a film with my daughter so I know the feeling. So we're pretty much not cameos. Yeah, that's a nice way to, to, yeah. to legitimize the legacy. Yes. Number eight, motherfucker. Samuel Jackson went back in time as Steven and invented the phrase motherfucker. Don't believe me? <laughs> Before this movie contributed to the motherfucking narrative, the earliest use of the phrase was in 1918, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. All right. And with that being said, number seven, N-word. Django Unchained holds an all-time record to the insane minded times they chose to use the word nigga. Nigga, 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 nigga. Quote Paul Mooney, it makes my teeth white in the morning. I said every morning, nigga, 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 nigga. They don't want us to have Martin Luther King Day. You don't owe Martin Luther King. Yeah, like y'all ain't owe Abraham Lincoln. With that being said, it was said the most in any other movie. 116 <laughs> times. I didn't think it was enough. <laughs> I'll get to that. Oh, what? That's that. Should I be getting to that or are you getting to that? Oh, I'll, I think, I think I'll think i be well within my realm. Of... Okay, go ahead, Everett K. Ross. Number six, Shrink Safe. With cotton fields being harder to come by these days, the film utilized soy plants with lint attached to stand in for cotton plants. Mm. And number five, Perfect Waltz. Christoph Waltz initially turned down the role, feeling it was too tailored to his persona, but Tarantino insisted and wouldn't take no for an answer. Waltz agreed under the condition that his character would be totally pure and never once act in a negative or evil manner. Tarantino agreed. Can you not, uh, and you know he stuck to that, even in the film when he says, so did you play with Ted last night? He was like, no, we just talked in my native tongue. Like, what the fuck you been talking all night? Oh, you one of them weird motherfuckers. Go ahead. He had to be weird about it, though, when she came in the room and he starts making the bed. Like, why you gotta fucking make, make the, the bed? bed. You, like, got make, all, you one of them weird motherfuckers. her feel you're, like you're like almost like you're getting off on the fact that she's feeling like you're going to fuck you her. You can drink. What's going on, man? Number four, first cut. This was Quentin Tarantino's first film that wasn't edited by Sally Mank, who died in 2010. 
Fred Raskin, who assisted Mank for both Kill Bill films, took over editing duties. Number three, let me do this one because this is also a part of your segment and mine. This is also a connection. Jamie Foxx brought in his own horse. His horse was named Cheetah. What is the connection? Animal Planet. A guy named Fox had a horse named Cheetah. Hey! Boom! How did I not fucking see that? Crazy. Yes, Jamie Foxx had the horse for four years. Uh, Cheetah received training before filming to ensure that it was camera ready. And number two, you're damn right. Did you know that Django and Brumhilda are the great, great, great grandparents of John Shaft? At a Comic-Con, Quentin Tarantino revealed his intentions to create the connection with an overt reference being found in Kerry Washington's character's full name, Brumhilda Von Shaft. And bonus fact about that this is the second time fox and washington have portrayed a married couple having previously starred as ray charles and della b della bay della b-e-a bay bay that seems like it should be all right all right having having go ahead do you remember that scene though you remember them in that if you don't nope uh you will remember it because she found his heroin oh okay it's okay I'm gonna go. I mean, there's no way you're talking about, okay, like it's a good segue or something. Like, she found, they were married, but my point is, she found that's pretty much she called a quiz. She stopped letting me see the kids after that. They were they were awesome in there. That was in 2004's yes. Ray. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> number one, stick around. Don't get up so fast. There is a short after credit scene featuring three men in a cage. The three men in the cage. You know what's fucked up about that towards the end of the movie? What they really don't talk about is that you see three men, uh, the uh, the three men playing uh, cards, and they're using slave ears as currency. Slaves that have been killed as currency. They're not using chips. They're oh, using yeah. ears. Yeah. How fucked up is that? That's extremely fucked up. Yeah, it is. All right, here is our uh... seven minutes in heaven. Normally, that's a sexual reference, but since we have kids who are not watching the show who are under 18, uh, we got to let you know seven minutes in heaven means a really good time. One of the scenes that really made you feel really good, that really jumped off the scene. Dave, take us away. All right, so um, my, I will say my, my, I got, it's it's hard. This is hard to pick the, the number one. That's what you um, said. I think my number three scene, my third favorite of the film, would be the Candyland shootout. Um, the way Schultz takes Calvin Candy out, Steven's ridiculous screaming for him as soon as he gets shot. <laughs> and then um, I really like the irony that James Remar plays the first character that Schultz kills um, when he picks Django up in the beginning. And he doubles back and plays the character that ends up killing uh, Dr. Schultz. I thought mm -hmm. that was neat. Schultz's last line, I'm sorry I couldn't resist. I thought that was a perfect summation of his character. Mm -hmm. um, it was as if, like, he's like uh, the closest to a character could achieve sainthood as possible. Mm. And it's like he never had, it was, it was never apparent that he was choosing to do the right thing. It always seemed like it was just inherent within him and he never really thought twice about it it was just his instinct to be a decent human being and then of course when the when the modern music begins playing as Django starts shooting the people coming through the door um and then shortly after that of course you get the uh the horse dance um as 
uh, after the uh, the house well, explodes. The prance dance. Yeah, the, the, cor- the courting. Hashtag prance dance. For me, um, it was one of the scenes, uh, it, not even one of the scenes, when we, uh, one of the first time we meet uh, at Carrie, Wa- Carrie, Wa- Carrie Washington played the character Hilda. If you notice, see you got to pick up on certain things in films and that's why people be like, oh, i just ran to the bathroom real quick you will start the whole fucking movie over i mean seriously because if you miss i mean i i used to think when, when i told myself when i made films it should it should be just that good that you can't even you got to eat the popcorn like he's like when you see that meme of michael jackson the gift of michael jackson eating the popcorn mm-hmm. he can't take his like i could be eating poison but my point is this is that she says in the, when we first meet in the film they call me hilda that hit for me on so many levels because number one, that's not her real fucking name. Well, no, it's, 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 no, no, she said they call me, meaning she didn't even remember her own really fucking name for wherever she was fucking stolen from. But because of the fact that she spoke German, the where she was at in Louisiana, they were so dumb that to it's just like saying, "Oh, a black black person is a Jimmy." Like any person that speaks German is Hilda to them. So she's like, they call me Hilda. And I'm like, that's not her fucking name. It made me, it was a connection I brought up. Like, don't Toby. Speak, don't speak French around him. He doesn't understand it. It'll embarrass him. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, and to my point, he said, that, but that's not, it's like the Toby thing. Hey, what's your name? Kunta. Your name is Toby. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's not my fucking name. That was one of my scenes. Go ahead. My number two scene is uh, Dr. Schultz's introduction. The, pretty much the opening of the movie after the, after the titles, the, um, that moment where Django whips the blanket off and he's walking in slow motion. And I don't want to say proudly, but he's just owning that this is where he's at in life. This is what's been done to him. And he still holds his head up high. And, uh, I mean, then he goes to step on the horse to squish the guy even further, which is awesome. And, uh, Christoph Waltz, and he says, uh, did you just get carried away with your gesture? Or are you aiming that weapon at me with violent intent? He shoots the dude's fucking horse in the head. This is right off the bat in the movie. Like, they got... They got, they they got, got out of the way early, didn't they? Yeah, and then if you notice, like, in the beginning, at the end credits, that's, like, one of the first things that comes up. It's like, hey, 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 no horses were harmed in the movie. He's He did it to cause him... Like... He he shot the animal in the head so he could literally fall on him. Yeah, that's what it was. What I what I what I love most about that scene is that it's a perfect introduction for Doctor Schultz because it's so telling about his character that the remaining guys that are out there, he gives them a choice, and it's an obvious choice. Like you can either kill that dude over there and put him in a hole yeah and then go to a more enlightened part of the country or you can carry him 37 miles to the nearest town back to safety and continue on as you were the choice is obvious but it's in his gesture that means something like he is giving them back their free will this is probably the first time they've been given the option for anything but then he doubles back and says for my astronomy fans out there he tells him which way to. Just in oh, case yeah, you didn't yeah. know, he doubles back. So yeah, now I'm with you. That's part of the, a part of the introduction. Uh, one of the ones that uh, my number, I guess, I it's reused three, so they're not in any particular order. But one of the ones that I definitely had to bring, bring up, and I mentioned this earlier. I did a little foreshadowing, which was the best use of a whip ever in my fucking, I've seen in my fucking life. You have to understand this. I've been, I've seen. Uh, videos. I've, I've never physically seen someone my ancestors get beat, but I can feel it every morning. I wake up. You, you wouldn't understand it. It's, it's, it's innately in us when your people have been beaten for 400 years. But when I saw, I've never seen a more manly, powdery blue suit in my life. When he takes that fucking whip and he goes over there and, and he just he, he just doesn't beat him. And to the, most people won't realize this. You may have read this in your research. There's a, a reverse shot to where they show Jamie Foxx in the character, but in a mirror, 
his head and his his hands yeah. are gone. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it speaks to a mystical figure or something like that right before. He, there's no reason for his head. You see everything else. So mm -hmm. my point is this. And he looks at him and says, I like the way you die, boy. Yeah. Like Jesus Christ. I mean, that that I mean, how can you not root for this motherfucker? You could have ended the film right there. Like I paid fifteen dollars for this shit. Cool. Forty minutes. I'm out. I'm good. Yep. That's actually my number one. Is, wow. Is, Why did you stop me? Because I, I because I I, I figure I let you lay the groundwork because mm -hmm. I've got plenty of notes that I just loved about that scene. I just I'm just gonna plow through them. Okay. Starting off with when he says, you're going to let me pick out my own clothes. And he does this little smirk almost at the audience. And, and then the next that cut to the vibrant suit just looking so, oh, man. Um, uh, like, it was just like a nod and a wink. And um, and then it goes right into the scene. They're right up to John Johnson's plantation, Mr. Big Bennett Daddy. or Big Daddy. Um <laughs> Totally hostile until Schultz mentions how much money he has. Green overcomes everything. Uh, the issue is clearly black and white until Green gets involved. So then uh, Django is a freeman, so he isn't to be treated like, you know the word he says there. Mm -hmm. Then the the uh, you want the me to girl. treat him like white folks? No, <laughs> he come back with that. Quick, let me be abundantly clear. What's that? What's that? What's that Jimmy name in town? They play. They play with the little metal. Yeah. <laughs> so then you get that you get a like comical moment, but then it goes straight into that the flashback that is so like it's heartbreaking really. Watching Django plead for his wife to be spared, like begging, throwing he doesn't care his ego is so far removed that especially like Django is like the superhero of the film and in that flashback you see him just it, it's it's it, it definitely sets it up nice where you're waiting for the revenge to take place and for him to be reunited. Leads right into him taking revenge by shooting the man who did it. And of course, like you said, I like the way you die to fucking whipping the other dude who is the worst gun handler in the history of gun handlers. Um, then the, my favorite part about that is how Schultz rides up. He is ready. He's like the original uh, Ever K. Ross. Oh, yeah, he, oh, yeah. He comes oh, yeah. riding up and leaps off that horse so quick, and then he's like... Who are they? Who are they? Yeah, who are they? He doesn't even know what exactly is going on. He just knows that he's there to have to have Django's back. And uh, and then, of course, you know, he has his he has his rifle aimed, and he's like, are you positive? I don't know. You don't know if that's him? I don't know what positive means. I'm sure that's him. Pop! Shoots him. At, like, it takes his... Like, it, it and what did he say after that? Um, positive he's dead yeah <laughs> and then when everybody comes up he's like, let's calm down we mean no one else any harm <laughs> dr schultz is so smooth almost like he's taking pleasure in conversing his way at a gunpoint like mm -hmm. that's when he seems the most alive is when he's smooth talking his way out of uh, out of the situation where people are pointing their guns at him and then that same kind of that same scene it goes into the the fucking idiots the the racist gang fighting over their masks and Don Johnson with the hold on, I'm fucking with my holes, and then uh, yeah, that that the the where uh, Schultz is is saying Big Daddy's getting away, like the the way Django shot Big Daddy, and the way they the way they shot that moment was really cool to me. How you just see the the horse running in slow motion, you hear the gunshot, and it's just the horse's feet, and then you see Big Daddy fall on the ground, and then it comes up to show the blood splatter on a horse. I thought that was really nicely done. 
Yeah, all in all, that was uh, that was probably the most enjoyable scene in the movie that, for me. That was almost my number one, and it probably was my number one, but I had a 1A and 1B, so I'm going to go with the other one. But before I do, I definitely have to really recap a lot of things you said on that. Like I say, that was, to me, again, that was the best. I have it written down. What does it say? Like, the best racist scene ever. Like, to me, to, because, again, it just kind of shows you, like, there's a... This is the side that we we as people would never get to see yet. Like angry mobs aren't angry all the time. They have to have normal conversation. And we, while we, I wouldn't normally give a fuck what a mob was talking about. That was fucking. It brought me in on the other side. Like wow, they really, like who the fuck made these? You know what I'm saying? Shit yeah. like that. Like it, again, you know we love quote, quote, uh, quoting Paul Mooney. Who's that bitch that sold the flag? Betsy Rock. That bitch was sleeping six. Oh, you know she had some big black maybe pajama. Oh, I'm so tired. I see stars. Well, bitch, put them in the flag, flag and fry me some chicken. Oh, Lord. So, yeah. All right. So, with that being said, to me, I just had to do it, bro. You know I love Paul. <laughs> My number one scene, uh, or mentioned scene, was the library scene. And the reason why the library scene, I'll, be, I'll go into depth on this, is when Stephen called Candy, Calvin Candy down to the library. He's like, he he shows how smart he is. Like, oh, is something wrong with the YK? Well, Stephen, that's it. Clearly, they like, let me be in the library. I, I, so, my point is this. The dynamic they never really talk about that is this is that of course like he said that Ben helped the, the skull that he put on this later was the the slave that took care of his granddaddy him and then eventually he died well I'm assuming that according to how they're saying that Ben died at a very young uh, oh uh, Calvin's young age so Calvin's pretty much only probably known Stephen his entire fucking maybe uh, from six till now life mm-hmm. and so <clears throat> he understands that that's his being. He probably misses being so much that he like like that like seriously like that to, that I hate to say it that's his pet and he loves Stephen so much that if any other motherfuckers that are human that are white fuck with Stephen he's going to fuck them up yeah that's his one sense of I'm not that bad of a guy my my best slave friends black like yeah. like like it's because he's not and like I say to me but that but to me but it shows the dynamic of. Stephen felt comfortable with that. Like he, I told you, is the ultimate turn. You're not mm-hmm. a racist. You were the product of racism, and you you stopped fighting back. You get not only did you give up, you got on their side, and you became yeah. worse than them. Like they had, like without Stephen, that whole even if you were traumatized by racism, some part of you be like, you know what? I know what these niggas over here doing, but fuck it. They, we we deserve a win every hundred years at least. Goddamn. You couldn't even write it off as like self preservation either because he went out of the out of his way to he, go above and Did you see him fucking? Like, like was, he was in there. He fixed some cognac. <laughs> Shout out with Fred. That had to be free back then. Yeah. Jesus. So he he he's talking. He's he's talking. But what, what, what they said was in in the film. Show, he showed him respect in public, but he 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 was his daddy in private. Mm-hmm. Like what? Like he Calvin didn't talk to him racist or uh, 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 uppity or biggity one time when they were in private. Not one time. Yeah, it's crazy, man. So that was that's why that scene was that library. It, it shows the dynamic between the slave that loved it. If they they call it the uh, and I'm damn it, I'm fucking this up right now. But what what what's the effect when the the captive becomes in love with the, the captor? It's some type of effect. Like it's, uh, your, it's a, not yeah, that it yeah, starts with in, Stockholm. Syndrome. Stockholm said that's what it was. The, the original, it, yeah, it became a name when niggas weren't doing it no more. <laughs> oh, oh, they he, they held hot. Oh, they were held hostage. We got a name for us. So when we was held hostage for five, four hundred fucking five years, no name for it. We'll talk about that later. Go ahead. That's my scene. All right. What were your favorite scenes in the movie? Let us know in the comments. And with that being said, let's get on to you are going to need a bigger boat. David, tell us what that means. These are our favorite uh, lines in the movie, and Quentin Tarantino has has his films are littered with, as you like to say, 
just a great wordplay. So we managed to uh, narrow it down to our five favorites each. He says, someone asks, someone, someone says the question, well, where did they get that name from? And Calvin Candy responds with, who knows how they get these nigga nicknames get started? And I'm like, like, you do realize it, like, no, that, no, there's no difference. A nickname is a nickname. Why are our names like, who knows how these, it's all, it's, it was the, it was Quinn Tarantino saying, oh, hi, that's a black name. That's a Shaquisha, this, that, and like, like, it's the same thing. Well, how they get they, why, nobody asked you how the fuck you got, whatever y'all, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever name it is, like, what? It's a name, just like a fingerprint. Yeah. It's yours. Fuck, man. Yeah. Calvin Candy, man. Calvin Ignorant. Candy. Yeah. That's pseudoscience. Doctor Schultz, close to the uh, close to the beginning when they're in when they walk into the saloon, and then the uh, pretty much the whole town is outside the saloon with guns. Um, he says to Django, "It's getting pretty tense out there. Don't make any quick movements and let me do the talking." I think this was a perfect example of how, as a white guy. To be an ally to your black friends that was that was like a sh- and that was one of their first interactions together in public so i thought it was telling that that's like immediately he's understanding that the dynamic there that he is operating under a form of privilege and can use that privilege almost as like a bulletproof vest for his black comrade hmm. okay yes i think we both have one uh I, you spoke to it earlier uh, when he said it was it was the exchange to where he says, uh, "Are you sure that's him?" Yeah, I'm sure. Are you positive? No. You're not positive. I don't know what positive means. Are you positive it's him? And he shoots me like, "Oh, positive, he did." That has Abbott and Costello written all over it. It was so well done, and I mean, yeah, I mean the delivery, uh, like the subject matter itself, uh, a, a black man being illiterate is not funny in inherently because of why that is like they weren't allowed to read um but the performance and the delivery of it and the timing and the beat like i don't don't know what i don't know what was funny about that was yeah they weren't allowed to read but calvin candy was and he still didn't know remember when somebody he said the german word at the table and they both were like huh what i mean yeah well then (laughs) then there's that moment where um uh dr schultz gives uh uh django the um what's it called the pretty much the bill of death for somebody and he's like that's a that's they do it so subtly but that's a big moment that's like a that's a white man give it like saying no you read it right yeah hey it was unheard of for that time uh we brought this up too my number two is i like the way you die boy django Mm. for me uh it was it was in the ending scene not the ending scene but the ending scene for uh dr king schultz and Kevin candy when you you saw he was never leaving that house. I'm telling you this right now. Uh, he, he, when I say Doctor King Schultz, he was already, when the moment he started looking at the books, he had already decided, "I am going to die." Check it out. Like it went from not dying, he was going to die now there because it, it he was going to find any excuse. I I, I I truly believe he was going down to stand to get some dynamite before he the old boy asked him to shake his hand. He was like, "You know, what? no, that's better." He wants me to say, yes. I'll shake his hand. Yes, this dumb bastard has said it. So my whole point is when he but before that. The breakdown happens with before he defeats him physically, he defeats him military, uh, uh, mentally. It's like a chess game when he says, "Alexander Dumas is black." He was telling about how he named his slave after this, after that, and you saw the Greco-Roman wrestling thing behind the table, mm-hmm. like, no, like you named your top slave. He's like, he, you thought he would have been okay with. He was like, with well, those those Frenchmen, a weak slave. He don't know, no, he was black. <laughs> and, and it's that it's that beat that Leonardo DiCaprio like. So wait a minute, I named my top nigga slave after somebody black. Like he was. It just hurt him. It was break, and that's when Leonardo DiCaprio decided, 
I got him. I'm gonna make oh, the one thing. I, I can't beat him. I gotta shake my hand. That's the only thing yeah, I can yeah. do. Uh, that's a southern tradition. I ain't from the south. This paperwork don't mean nothing. But the, the fuck it don't. <laughs> that actually leads perfectly into my number three. Schultz to Candy insists on what? That I shake your hand? Then I must insist the opposite direction. <laughs> like that, man. Schultz is so smooth. Way he is. He oh, is. Shit to somebody. He is. He is. He is. Uh, and then for me, my number one was, uh, my number one was not even uh, all the black, all the black people get out of here. Get away. No, all the black people get away from the white people, and get out of here. And then, and then, and then Stephen tries move. Not you, Stephen. You're right where you belong, dude. That—that's my number five. Oh, okay, dude. When 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 he says Cora, say goodbye mm-hmm. to Calvin Candy's sister. He like, she was like, huh? Say goodbye. Bah, bah. I mean, it's that's one second. When all I could think about was the dude jumping off the ladder right in the other. Room. Oh yeah, I, mean, I thought about that too. Now I'm gonna tell you one thing you did not know is this is definitely worth a rewatch of the entire film just for these three seconds. Remember the girl. I don't know if you. I don't know if you ever seen Harlem Nights, but remember the girl that Calvin. They. It, it was unspoken. She was the. She was the. Oh, I'm telling you uh, that that once once that nigga juice get on, it's like a little black mass. Yeah, it, it's so like he. That was old girl that was always around him. He had that one black girl that was always around him. She was like, oh, I know you didn't mean me when she told he told everybody to get out. So yeah. they, in fairness, when Tarantino, even though he said nigga a bunch, he didn't show a lot of rape in a slave. This is the less rape that's ever been shown. So give him credit for that. It's the two <laughs> yeah. two sides of every flip side of that coin. So with that being said, my point is is that you don't notice when they come back from the funeral. She, the black girl is still entitled. She hand the first, before the white people even ask Cora to do anything. She hands her the umbrella, and Cora sets the umbrella over there. Cora still don't trip. And then out of nowhere, um, uh, uh, John Candy's sister—I mean, not John Candy, Jesus Christ, rest in peace. Uh, Calvin Candy's sister. I'm still okay. Says, uh, "I'm tired. Can you can you fix me and such and such some coffee?" Miss Cora like right away, such and such. Stephen out of nowhere, right on time, and you help her too, letting this bitch know. Oh no, the good days. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not, not even you're black. Man. You're back, bitch. You're back. Hey, I, bitch, I remember before he started fucking you. And, and I, I, I've been waiting on it. Just the one good thing came out of this nigga dying. Like, like now, you should. And she like, and then Cora was like, come on. Yeah. Do, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, man. Yeah, that was that was great for me, man. Jesus. My last one was uh, when he's when Django is being taken at the end, and he's talking to like the Australian dudes. He's hey, man. Like, yeah, he's when they're like, "You got yourself a deal, Blackie." He when he the way he responds and says, "You got yourself a deal, mate." <laughs> it's the same thing, like like he might as well have said, "Motherfucker." Right. If they were right. smart, they would have known they were about to get shot. And he did. He did it quick. Give him a gun. Like, what the fuck were they thinking? That's fucking crazy, man. But yeah, those. Hey, man, that's that's going to need a bigger boat, guys. Like again, we this this. There's no way to have narrowed it down to ten. But with that being said, like I mean, we literally could have went. Uh, Act by act and done this, but hey, that's a bigger boat, guys. Yeah. Hey, and by when we and when we say bigger boat, we're not talking about Nina Penta or Santa Maria. Uh, Columbus Day. Fuck. Yeah. (laughs) All right, let's move on to scene stealers. These are people that we actually did like. Who was our well? Before we before we get into scene stealers, let's throw up the uh, the board and. And who is, uh, who the hell was our first? <laughs> what have we what, done? Yeah, it's all blur. It's already blurring this season. We opened up the season with Vanilla Sky. Vanilla Sky, and that, that of course, went to Penelope Cruz. Not Penelope, no, Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz, Cameron Diaz, Cameron Diaz. that's right. Cameron, Cameron Diaz. Diaz is yes. on the board. And yes. then uh, Tropic Thunder, of course, Robert, Robert Downey, Downey Jr. Lincoln Osiris. <laughs> and 
who is going to join Robert Downey Jr. and Cameron Diaz on the board? Who honorable is the mentions scene first? stealer? You want to yes. go honorable first? I got, I got two honorable mentions. I only have one, but you, so I'll, you go first. All right, my uh, my first honorable mention goes to Jamie Fox, um, because I think his ability to go from a pleading, desperate victim in the flashbacks to the calm, cool, collected vigilante that we see in the present was i mean you see an awesome range in his performance just in one role uh he's playing both the the victim and the the superhero vigilante and almost like the larger than life mythical figure but he's also so human and uh he did it effectively i think he did it better than will smith would have done it my honorable mention was going to go to samuel jackson it's not though only because it's, it's certain times where you want to play a role, and I and to me, like I say, to what he did, he just he was just great. Sam, he was he. This was Sam being great. See, Sam's gonna be great, and don't get me wrong. If you want to ask me one of Sam Jackson's best roles, now you talk if you start talking about Long Kiss Goodnight and the Negotiator, where I've seen different ranges of different stuff like that. So okay, yeah, talk to me about. It. But this, and don't get me wrong. Yes, I'm not going to ignore the fact it's hard to ask a person to portray a slave. But if anybody's gonna do it, and like you just said, motherfucker, this is another Tuesday. So you're just that motherfucker. Your stacks from fucking uh. It's, it's the Tom Cruise effect. Yeah. He's cursed because we already expected great from him. So Correct. It's like, so I'm not impressed. Yeah, no, I was impressed, but I was yeah, I wasn't overly impressed. Yeah. Honorable mention goes to Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. Yeah, okay, what he so did with this because I truly felt he did feel uncomfortable, but yeah, you don't get to say that around us. Yeah. And I know he didn't mean anything by it. But I'm just glad the, the realest motherfucker in the room pulled him over to the side. Like, hey, motherfucker, we've been at this goddamn table scene for three. You better get comfortable saying this shit. Nah, nah, Leonardo, you old decrepit hey, bastard. bastard. <laughs> I, I, I need you to say nigga like I need a rock in my shoe. Uh, my my other honorable mention goes to Christoph Waltz because I couldn't imagine anyone bringing that eccentric against the grain character to life the, with the effectiveness that he did. Um, I love the way he acts. Uh, in a way that was completely unheard of at that time and he does it so casually almost like like I feel like he enjoys having Django as his partner because of the response it elicits in everybody that they encounter and I love the fact that he he refuses to give any credit to the notion that there's any absurdity in a white man being seen or being friendly with a black man. He just approaches it every time like, what is the big deal? What are you guys so uppity about? Like, let the, what is the problem? And he doesn't, he doesn't even really do that much. He just is just completely, he acts like he's completely bewildered by their bewilderment, which is, it's, he does it well. <laughs> All right, so with that being said, all right, those, we you got our honorable mentions, and we're going to go now into who we chose to hopefully grace our screen. So I am going to go with a gentleman by the name of Christoph Waltz. The reason why I went with him is uh, you hit on a lot of points there. Um, number one, the reason why I hit on it is because before the man took the role, the man just uh, told the director that he would only do it if it could be done one way. And furthermore, before the man even said that he turned it down because he felt the role too much mirrored what he was. You're not even asking me to act. Mm -hmm. He asked me to get a paycheck. Well, in Tarantino, if you ever just want me to be me, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, but to me, like to me, first and foremost, you got another subtext of a lot of Germans came over from Germany when they came to the United States and they were a big part of the anti-slavery, anti-racism movement. Like they, I'm not saying no Germans didn't come over who weren't racist. I'm just simply saying like they were the ones that come here like, nah, man, hard work is hard working. 
Yeah. You know, like, what the fuck's going on? Like, this motherfucker's working harder than you because you're holding him back. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, this weird shit like that, man. So, to me, what he did with his character on so many different levels, I saw compassion. And here's the thing about it. Again, what you said, he was so cool throughout the whole movie, but the one thing he couldn't stand at the end, man, was that motherfucking beast. There was one animal in his family. It wasn't a horse, boy. It wasn't the pigs. It wasn't the, the slaves. It was it was Calvin Candy. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was truly him. And he, even his hair when he's around Calvin, he's just, it's so, it's, it's, it's getting crazy now because he's looking at it like, this motherfucker got all these books in here. I know he ain't read none of these motherfuckers. He is losing it right in front of us. And it's like, damn. He's like, I'm sorry. Because you got to understand that he probably knew, like, damn, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm finna have to kill this motherfucker. But you know what? I probably fucked up everything we just did. The 12th out, like, like he, Jamie's not gonna get out. I'm sorry. Like, I listen, out of everything I've dealt for you, I'm only asking for one thing. I, I, and I don't think you're gonna be mad at it. I need to kill this motherfucker. Yeah, he's an actual intellectual having to endure somebody pretending to be an intellectual. <laughs> and, and, and again, like you said, at, at every given point, he went, like you just said, he went into each situation with not saying that not even trying to be overly not racist. He gave everybody an opportunity to, for them not to be racist. He yeah. only responded to the environment they was in. But if I, again, yeah, removing... Nothing just, to see here. Yeah, but removing how his character was written, it just, like, a front, he really, even when the scene at the beginning to where they go into the bar and they get a beer, and normally you see this in all Americans, like, when they give you a beer, they give, they give it to you the fuzzy, he slices the... It's just his mannerism, this, that mm-hmm. he was... Man, listen, what he did with this uh, character, bro, it was, um, I wouldn't have wanted to see anybody else do it, and it really made me feel something to where I never had read his uh, uh, I Am uh, biography before, but after seeing the uh, Django Unchained years ago, I had to know who he was, and I went back and looked at his whole filmography. Yeah, and to see, like, the kind of character he played in Inglorious Bastards, mm-hmm. to go from, like, the epitome of evil to uh, somebody that's a borderline saint, that's range, too. Yes, well, it was backwards though because the Django, Django then this, then it goes oh, back. Yeah. So, but, but either yeah. way, range is range, range, yeah. range is a spectrum, man. <laughs> um, I gotta give it to Leonardo DiCaprio almost for the exact opposite reason why you didn't want to give it to him, um, because to understand how uncomfortable he was playing that character, and to still see the results of him committing a hundred and ten percent to a character that we know it's been documented he didn't. Like, these shoes weren't comfortable for him to fill, yet he still crammed his feet in them and ran a marathon in them. So I thought that in itself was impressive. Um, and that, on on the page, like, I would love to just read the script before ever seeing the movie and, and see how I felt about the character of Calvin Candy because on the page I could only imagine that it is just a villainous just somebody that you find no enjoyment in at all it's just hate i just despise this motherfucker and uh leonardo dicaprio manages to take that character that is easily despised and you're still despising him but you're you're entertained by him in the exact same moments and i think that that speaks to leonardo dicaprio's talent to be able to do that with the character so here we are um i'm gonna make this really easy because i was actually on the fence between christoph waltz and leonardo dicaprio they they kept switching from honorable mention to number one throughout the whole thing um so uh and uh, yeah i i would say i would say i'm i throw my hat in the ring for christoph waltz
the first German on the board. Give him a prize. Yes. Hey, Christoph. Hey, you earned it, you fat bastard. Hey, President, through your uh, salute. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, 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 even me saying that now, you bring it back up. But hey, Leonardo, I'm pretty sure you get another shot. Oh yeah, that's what the academy's been telling him for like this oh my <laughs> his whole career. Jesus always Christ. nominated. Always, always a bridesmaid. Always going home empty. Never a bride. <laughs> All right, Dave. What do we have next? <coughs> uh, before we go on, let us know in the comments who your favorite, uh, who your favorite characters or actors, actress, artists were in Django Unchained. And um, with that being said, for continuity purposes, let me go ahead and get comfortable in the jacket there you go. because it is time for cast, crew, or you. <laughs> and good golly, Miss Molly, <laughs> we have uh, quite the segment of cast, crew, or you. We are speaking to William Clark, Quentin Tarantino's go-to assistant director. We'll also be speaking to Laura Kayouet. And Escalante Lundy stars from the film, of course, uh, Laura Candy, Laura Lee Candy Fitzwilly, mm. and uh, Big Fred. So those interviews are coming up right now for Cast Career You. Enjoy. All right, guys, today we have a very special guest. When you're talking about someone who's done film, someone who's been in film, someone who is film, as far as we are concerned, he is someone you will definitely recognize from the film we brought him here to discuss today, Django Unchained, but he is an actor a and a writer from Louisiana who has been working steadily since 2008 with 50 movies under his belt, plus five more from announced post-production stages. His name is Escalante, don't mess it up, Lundy, but you may know him as Big Fred. Mr. Lundy, thank you so much, sir, for joining us again today. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you for having me. It's 2012, and you get the call. You're going to be in Django Unchained. So first, how did that come to be? And second, what what was your reaction initially? That was a strange situation because I remember in 2011, it was maybe like August 2011, had the audition. It was two parts that I read for. It was Big Fred and it was this other part. I think it was Oscar. It was another another character. Another character I wanted to get because the other character in the audition had had the most lines. And later on, they broke it up at the very, very end of Django, they broke it up to the three guys in the cage. They gave each one of them a line. But initially, those each one of those guys, just one person had that line. And Big Fred just had, I think my line was, yes, sir, three times. That was, that's all it was. And uh, and that and later became my, it became the best scene I ever did in, in the history of my acting career. And then they actually cut it out the movie. Because um, I, didn't, I didn't understand the script. It was a lot of stuff. A lot of times time they get scripts, you only get, you only get a, your part that you get a a snippet of the part one of the parts that you're reading for you could have three scenes they may give you one scene to read for mm -hmm. so you have no idea how it fits in the story zero yeah. so i read for big friend i read I think the character name was character's name was oscar uh, i think that's what it was so i go into the casting director's office i, I read for both of those and i leave and i don't hear anything normally if i don't hear anything within a week I forget about it because you know mm -hmm. I, when I first started I used to nag my agent did you hear anything she said relax if they want you they let you know if they don't they don't because they yeah. don't call you and tell you you don't have it <laughs> they call the people who do and I didn't understand I didn't know that so that was another lesson learned they're not that courteous so anyway that was August and then in November it was the week before Thanksgiving 
or the week of Thanksgiving. And I remember my agent calling me saying, Quentin Tarantino wants to meet you. He's at the, uh, I think it was the Fairmont Hotel downtown. I guess he had a, a room there. I say, I say, for what? Another is another movie? No, it's the movie you ask. Because normally, you know, I didn't know how big films work. Big films, you know, they they start production, you know, way ahead. Whereas normally, for like a television show, if you're your co-star, you read one, you, you go into audition, in a couple of days, you know whether you got the part or not. And if it's a, if it's in most films in those days before they started doing um, taped auditions, you would go in cast director, and then you would come back for a callback with the producer or director of the film, like I did. was uh, What was one that I did? Um, uh, Nicholas Cage, um, Bad Lieutenant. I went in. I remember going in and did a good job. I made it to the audition because I, I made it to the callback. I had the, the famous director, uh, German, is he German? Verhog? Verhog? Whatever his name is. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of his name right now, but um, I met him. He was he. I, I remember whispering to his, to his assistant that that was a great, a great uh, audition. He trying to get the part, so that was I was used to going in, either getting getting the part or having a call back and getting the part. That's initially that's how it was back in those days before they started doing a lot of tape auditions. And so I go to the hotel. I'm waiting outside. Um, he comes to the door. No, the, the the casting director comes to the door. I go in there. He comes, shakes my hand, and he's 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 bigger than life. I mean, he sucks the, all the air out the room. So Escalante Lundy, great to meet you. I like your audition. You you said you do what most actors don't do. You give me, you don't give me what I want. You give me, you give me a character, not what I not what I not what you think I want. Well, I, I didn't I didn't give you what I thought you want because I didn't know what the hell I what it was. <laughs> I didn't know what the character was. It was just three lines of yes, sir. So you know, I mean, I didn't I didn't know enough to give him what he wanted. It was sometimes it's best to be ignorant because you can't make obvious mistakes if you don't know. So uh that was that's one of those times where ignorance ignorance was bliss. Um so we sat down and me uh, it was his assistant and then the cat the local casting director. And we talked about 25 minutes. He just talked and talked and talked and talked before he even got to the, just talking about, you know, my, he wanted to know about my life. Basically what you're doing, that's what he did. That's cool. he was, what he was, what he's doing is he's trying to see if the character is inside of you. Because mm-hmm. when he looks at you, he's like, he's looking, like he's almost reading your mind. Like he, he's looking past everything. Mm-hmm. It's like he's, he's a hard person to lie to extremely because he is like he's 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 noticing everything you do your body language so we talked about 25 minutes i remember asking me do you feel uncomfortable would you feel uncomfortable doing after explain what explain what the movie was about would you feel uncomfortable with doing this type of movie i said if i felt comfortable something would be wrong with me so uh <laughs> so then we are then we then we, we read it the, the scene a couple can explain what the scene was uh, but I, ha- I had a fight scene before that, and this is after um, when we get to Candyland, and then he explained all that. So we did the scene, we read it, then we actually did it physically. And then he said, "Well, if you get this part, I want you to, um, you know, not don't cut your hair, don't shave. You might need to lose some weight. I need to see if you can actually do the physical part to it." So 
is I would have you meet with a, a, a stunt coordinator locally and then then see if um, he thinks you can do the job. So I'm saying to myself, he wants me to do all that. I must have the job. I didn't know. I didn't know other people. He was addition other people also. I had no idea. So another, you know, I wasn't even thinking that. Um, so, so I go home. I'm all excited. I get a call uh, next day from the the stunt coordinator said he had a local person there that he wanted me to meet with. And the guy was going to put me through the paces to see if he felt I could do the job. Cause he said, I was, you know, I was a little bigger than he thought I was. And he didn't know whether or not I could physically do. So I, I met the guy and name was buddy. He's an older guy. So I went, I did everything he wanted me to do. And then he called uh, the other guy, the, the casting director, I mean, the um, stunt coordinator and gave him, gave him, my approval, his approval, and then he called me and said, um, yeah, yeah, I got the approval. And then I get a call a couple of days later that I had to, to part. So that was right, right after Thanksgiving that I found out officially that I was going to be shooting in March. So that's how, that's how I got the part. And what, what was that like working with Tarantino on set? Uh, it's like not a director uh, ever met. Actually, what, what he does... And and this for people who haven't worked doesn't know he he seduces you you fall in love with him and what I mean by that is that he gives you everything that you need I mean it's like Fantasy Island you want something you got it I mean you have the best in catering which is my favorite department set <laughs> design wardrobe uh, props you have the best and everything you there's nothing you can say you didn't have you know they had a guy they had they would have the when they were shooting a scene of a cloud was a certain location the cloud moved they can call some weather channel it will let them know another, another cloud was coming there was to that degree i mean you're talking about a nine hundred million dollar budget i mean he just he's so intelligent and he's a he's the, the key with quentin is he's a great communicator that's probably his number one asset. And that's why a lot of directors probably fail. They don't, they have, they don't have the knowledge of how to communicate with actors. And that's probably his, one of his greatest strengths. He knows how to communicate with people. I remember I was doing a scene, me and Leah, we did the fight scene. After the fight scene, the fight scene that y'all saw in the movie is not the fight scene. That's like a sample. Yeah. That fight scene took us two weeks to shoot. Hmm. He showed y'all the rated G version. Yeah, they had that. We was in the you know like like in the corner with like you're fighting in the manager, and then after the there was pause after the fight. There's a part when I I took both the guy's eyes out. The part when he bit chunks out my my shoulder because we shot it for two weeks. And um, there was a scene after the fight when you see um when after the fight Leo tells me give, tells the bartender to give me a beer and all that. But it, we did it a few times, and then, then one time Quentin said, "Say it, knowing you don't mean it, but say it the same. Say it the same way you're saying it, but just say it, knowing you don't mean it." And when we did it next time. I felt that he didn't mean it. Like I knew this was like the end for me. But he knows not only what to say; he knows how to say it, that it's easy for you to translate and to perform it. So I would say probably his communication skills are probably the best. That I've ever seen, and then he does stuff for you, um, like every at least once, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. We would have movie night, where he would get this obscure Japanese movie, 
and he'll rent out and take a theater, he rent out the whole theater, and only we can come, and there'll be food there and, and alcohol, and you know, he just he just he showed he appreciated you. So what that did for you is that you would do everything for him. Mm-hmm. You know, you do anything because you didn't want to disappoint him. He did all that for you, put you in this situation that nobody else had done. And so you want to do everything not to dis- disappoint him. Not so much, you'd more, you, you do it for him more than you're doing it for yourself. And that's, yeah. that's what he does. That that's, people don't, that's, what, that's what he does what people don't realize. You were talking about the, uh, the screenings. Is that, I, I, noticed a, I noticed a picture of you and some of the cast of the other cast of the film. It almost looks like you guys are at a screening. Um, that was actually uh, Leo, um, Leo uh, had, he had, they, they put him in one, and uh, the stars got houses. That was the house he was staying in. He was staying, it was another star's house that he was staying in. But Leo, that was the house he was staying in. So he invited some of the guys over to watch an MM, MMA fight. I think it was, uh, who was the guy, uh, Jones? So James Remar, I guess, lost that, lost whatever bet. I noticed a lot of cash in his hands. Jamie Foxx and, um, Couple of people had bet. They would bet just a dollar. You know, Jamie bet. He, he was for the other guy. Uh, Leo had betted. James betted, and a um, couple of guys had bet a dollar. So uh, <laughs> we just we was on the on the sofa. We just decided to take a picture after the fight, and James just held up the dollar. Uh, so that was like because uh, Leo had had catered some food, invited some people over. So it's about twenty of us, all the Mandangos and some other people, and him, his people. So it's about twenty of us that were there. And that was we had like he he catered dinner, and we watched the fight, and then that was after afterwards. Uh, we just just hanging out, just talking. So just a picture we took, but that that wasn't that was just with the guys, some of the guys on the set. That wasn't with the the whole production with the yeah. witness up. Yeah, but that was just yeah, James just hold, held the dial up. Yeah. I, I want to change tone for a moment and ask you about this, and and, uh, and not even just with Leonardo DiCaprio's character, with your character as well, because I was very fascinated when we, I found out we we're going to be interviewing you with a subject matter like this, like what you told Quentin Tarantino is, if I if I'm comfortable with this, you got the wrong guy. There is a problem. So I want to know. We read that Leonardo DiCaprio was so uncomfortable with his character. He was also known for being a, a method method actor. I mean, he he ate raw bison and slept with an animal carcass for the revenue. So we already know how far he'll go. I'm curious. On when you saw him, if he ever broke character with you on set just because of how uncomfortable he was in that role, something pulling away from him like that. And furthermore, were you ever at a position to where you felt you couldn't perform because this this is serious content we're talking about here? How did how did that all translate? Uh well, with me, I the, the, the best thing about this film is that I had time. Like I said, I I found out I had the part basically in the November, beginning of beginning, beginning of December. So at December, January, February to prepare at three months. I never today since before or after had three months prepared for any film. You know, so now I'll see, you know, for the for the stars, I see why they need that time because to get into character takes time. Um, especially, especially for somebody like me. I had only been acting like five years, five, six, six years when like six years when I when that happened. So, you know, I, I needed the time. Um so for me, I had time. So what I did was um for me, what works the best, the easiest, there's a lot of things that I do, but the thing that works the most effective is a word. And I have one word that's like my theme throughout the whole film. For this word, it was despair. That was the one word that I, I attached myself to despair, which is just mean, you know, it's hopeless. You know, mm-hmm. I will be a slave the rest of my life. So 
I attached myself to that word and everything I did was, was attached to that word. Um, and so I always kept, always kept that in me, you know, for three months, I just drilled that in when I was working out, uh, when I was working, working my day job, when I was doing anything, I'm at the stop sign, despair, despair. That's, I drilled that into me for three straight months. So that no, no matter what I was doing in character, not in character, it was always there. Um, with Leo, um, it's a lot of things I found out about Leo. Like he had never did a play. He had never did a play. I, he, we just was talking about some of the actors were talking. That night he was talking. He said he had never did a play. I didn't know that. Um, he had, the interesting thing about Leo that's so fascinating, he had just shot Great Grass, Django, Wolf of Wall Street, back to back to back. And I mean, that's amazing. How could you do, each character was so different. Yeah. You know, he went back to back to back. I mean, straight, no, not a day break. Mm-hmm. So for him, when we, when we would say cut, nobody really stayed externally in character. Now, they may have been internally, but exteriorly, they would go back. Well, it's Sam. He was the one. He would, as soon as they say cut, he would go back to being Sam. Immediately. As they say action, go right into it. He, he probably went in and out of character the easiest. He probably did the longest. Um, Christoph, another one, you know, the old actors, they was, it's easy for them, I think, to, to break character. Nobody really stayed external. You couldn't see it. I mean, you couldn't feel They didn't, they weren't in character when after the, the witness said cut. They may have still been in character internally, but they weren't external. They weren't still, Leo was still talking like uh, Monsieur Candy and uh, Sam wasn't Steven, his character, and Jamie wasn't Django. When they say cut, because Quentin would have always have something to say, and they would talk in their own voices. So he may have, you know, you still keep it there, but it wasn't like true method actors. Now he may have done it on other sets, I don't know. But in this set, everybody, when Quentin said cut, everybody kind of it was a very relaxed set, very 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 relaxed. So people kind of, you know, semi broke character in between uh, takes, and we we'll go right back to it. As soon as, as soon as you know, they were, um, it was ready when they were started to roll. You would get right back into it when they say when they were rolled. So, uh, I didn't see it. Okay. I didn't see anybody being in character twenty four seven. Well, that's it. Well, put it this way: out of all the sets to not do that on, that's the one. To, like when they say cut, cut. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the please cut. Let, let me ask you this: uh, before we move on, do you have any interesting factoids you'd like to share that you think fans of the film would appreciate knowing anything that you saw behind the scene or on set, or just just anything in general? Uh, well, that thing, nothing with 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 um, with Leo because I worked with him the most because most of my scenes, every scene I was in, he was there. And uh, when I met him, <laughs> the funny thing, uh, I, when I found out who was in the movie and I found out the character, I realized I was I was gonna be working with him. Initially, but then I kind of forgot about that, you know, when I was preparing. Then when it came time, because I shot my fight scene first, because um, they shot the, I think the movie took like eight months. They shot initially all the um, the scenes in the snow in Wyoming, I think. Wyoming, I think it was Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Anything with hills was uh, California, where, like with the horses, when they would, you know, and anything on the plantation, the plantation scenes and, and the scenes inside of Candyland. Uh, was in Louisiana. The stage was in New Orleans and the, the plantation scenes were out in um, Bashery, Louisiana, which is like 30 miles away. 
And I remember I had shot my scene. First day I went on set. Remember, first day I went on set, it was Jamie Foxx, Christoph Waltz, Waltz, and Don Johnson. That scene when Jamie Foxx showed with that blue suit on. And so I walk on set, man, because I had been rehearsing with the stunt coordinator in my fight scene. Then the next day he said, well, now we want you to come on set and do it. Man, you walked out there, you look like you stepped in 1850. I mean, they had real cotton. They had, they had um, the, um, the guys on the horses. Uh, they had the slaves. I mean, you look like you stepped back in time. I mean, it was frightening. Mm-hmm. It was like, they could have said, okay, we're going we gonna to make all black people from there, from this down, y'all going to be real slaves. <laughs> it felt like they could have did it. You know, it was like the set was so believable. It was, it, 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 it was awesome. Like it was like you was actually back in time. Yeah. I mean, and then uh, um, I remember meeting. I met so I met Don Johnson and uh, Christoph and Jamie, and uh, then I then I then I would go on set every day to rehearse the fight scene until it was time to do it. So I was on set at least two weeks before we started like, shooting it, and all the scene just just seeing the 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 professionalism of uh how quentin runs his set he shoots a lot of takes but everything is profound and people just seem like this one big happy family then i've been on sets where people couldn't wait to get it over with but not this one i mean mm-hmm. it was just like everybody was happy to be there because he works with a lot of the same people particularly the crew and uh so i remember that that's my first impression being on set i remember when i met leo which was so strange I had, I had the last time I saw him on film was the the FBI, uh, J Edgar Hoover. So my last impression of him is this little fat white man on the side of the bed naked. That's my last impression of him. So when I'm on set, I remember the right that I, I I had been rehearsing my scene. So I said we're gonna shoot the scene. So I remember I remember Quentin said, okay, the only person I had met so far was Leo. Not Leo, I had met Jamie, Kristoff, and um, Don, but Don Johnson wasn't in this scene. So we all go to say, everybody, all the actors just go in the room. Y'all just go in the room, just the actors and everybody. We're just going to wait outside. So we're in a room about probably 30 minutes. But I remember I'm in the room, and then I, I, I meet some of the, the new actors that's coming in. And then this kid walks up to me, say, how you doing? My name is Leo. And it doesn't. It, it does not register to me. This is Leonardo DiCaprio. It it did not register to me because he had jeans on. He was he was six. He was tall. He's like six. He's a little. He's like two inches shorter than them. Six two. So he's at least six feet. He has his baseball cap on. I think it's Ohio State baseball cap. A gray T-shirt. So you doing? My name is Leo. He just started talking to me, and then I'm saying, "Who is this?" Because nobody in this room should be here unless you're an actor. And it took me about probably about two minutes before I realized who he is. Because my, my, my impression of him was the little fat man laying naked on the side of the bed. So I had no idea who he was about. Then, then it, oh, this is who he is. Because it didn't, I didn't know who he was for about two minutes. Because I didn't know he was that tall and slim. I had, I, I didn't know he was that tall because he's taller than I thought he would be. And then we just started talking, you know, just, and then I remember he, um, then Quinn said, okay, we're going to get started. He said, well, let me, you want a water? I'm going to get a water. You want a water? I said, yeah, give me a water. I was just, you know, yeah, he was, he was, he's very, extremely nice guy, extremely nice guy. Um, uh, Christoph was very, we used to 
our name for him was the most interesting man in the world because he had that beard and he had that European gentleman list. The way he, you know, he's very lucky. He was very wise. He seemed like a very wise person. The way he approached, very measured, uh, meticulous. Because every time he was on set, I would shake his hand. He would always take his glove off before he shook my hand. You know, just he like he knew all the protocol, uh, knew every protocol on on how to present yourself. Jamie was was real, real cool. Always telling stories all day. He never, think about Jamie Foxx, he never raises his voice. Never raises his voice one time. You know, like Sam is a whole different story. Sam Jackson is what you see is what you get. There's no pretense. There's no nothing. He is who he is. And, you know, that's, and, um, and uh, yeah, Sam and and Quentin are similar like that. They just, they who they are, who they are. They're very comfortable in their skin. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I was impressed by, nothing with Leo, he treated it like it was his first big break, you know, because a lot of times we're shooting scenes that he was off camera, it didn't make a difference. Every take was important to him. Similar to Jamie, they, even though um, they treated it like this was a big break, they didn't treat it like, oh, I got this, I've been doing this, you know, for however long, you know, I'm the star. They didn't, they didn't, nobody treated it like that. I've been on film sets where people just started acting. They, they get a lead role and act like they've been doing it and won 10 Oscars. So um, it's just that it was it was so comfortable that it gave you, it helped you, it helped you feel, they didn't, they didn't treat you like you was less than because you didn't have the experience and acknowledgement and all the credits and, you know, all the trappings that they had. You didn't have the celebrity they had, but they didn't treat you that way because because they would treat the extras. Everybody was respectful to everybody. There was no, I say they would they didn't treat you badly because you wasn't one of the main people on set. So, uh, and so the, it was easy to talk. I, I was able to talk to anybody whenever I want. I got to hang out with Leo off set a couple of times. Uh, I was talking to Jamie almost every day on set. And then some of that other actors when I had opportunities, but it wasn't about, you know, somebody he's off the limit, he's off limit, you know, it wasn't about that. So that was probably my best impression of, um, that's probably the thing that, that people don't realize is that when you hear these rumors and you hear, you see the stuff that's printed about people until you meet them, you don't know if that's true or not because the person spreading the rumors or the misinformation may have a personal uh, grievance with the with with this person for whatever reason that doesn't mean it's true yeah so uh i was able to find out some interesting things about these people that um that was that was very positive so it was a it was extremely positive experience in it and uh it, it, it kind of it helped me continue to act because you know i was thinking about should i continue to do this it was five years and i hadn't I worked a little bit, but nothing major. Uh, not nothing like this. Uh, I think the Tremaine from HBO might have been my biggest thing up to that time. Um, but but since then, I I was able to continue acting, and um, that was one of the main reasons why, because I got an opportunity to be in a film. I wouldn't say that I, I shouldn't have been in or didn't deserve to be in because the part that I had, somebody already, somebody else already had it, and the guy was Gerard's name was Jared Bunch, Gerard Bunch. He was the person that had my part. And he told me that he had the part and they um he they gave it to me. But he still he was in the movie, but he didn't have the part that I ended up getting. 
before we let you go, and again, thank you for coming on. Um, do you have any parting words that you'd like to share with the audience? Just anything at all? Could be a proverb, poem, or just a word of advice. Haiku, anything. <laughs> uh, a word of advice, and I and I had to I had to learn this myself, and 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 because I say acting was something I never wanted to do, but one thing I've I've learned is that when you you know because Miles had a fear. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like rejection or failure. So what that does sometimes, it paralyzes people from trying anything. And so I had to try something that I didn't even want, I didn't know I wanted to try. So, you know, so, you know, but I would tell people the worst thing that can happen to you is that you learn something. That's right. That is the worst thing that can happen to you. So if that is the worst thing, why not? Whatever that, that why is for you yeah. you know so the worst thing that can happen to you is that you learn something and since that has and that, that's what i was that's what i was telling you the best thing that happened to me was acting was nothing about nothing to do with acting is is what it has helped a lot of other things i'm doing and have done in my life i never would have done uh because i was too afraid of of failure or rejection mm-hmm. you know i've, I've traveled uh i've traveled you know the world i mean i've been to every continent except australia and antarctica i've been to five continents uh which i never would have thought i would have done because to me when i was young when i graduated from college uh, my dad gave me asking what i wanted for graduation i said uh give me a ticket to california so that to me that was a big thing for somebody in, in louisiana i didn't get on the plane till i was 23 years old but it was a different world 30 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, a whole different world. But now, you know, people talk to anybody anywhere in the world instantaneously. So I would say, you know, whatever you want to do in life, just do it. Do not wait. Because I've had, uh, I'm over 50. When I, right after I made 50, I had four guys that I went to high school with died in a 12 month, in a year, 12, 12 month calendar year. One uh, lung cancer, stroke, heart attack, brain cancer. And the last guy died was in the best shape. He was the best shaped person that I knew regardless of age. Yeah. And uh, I had another friend of mine. I'm going to his, his funeral. I went to high school, same high school, uh, tomorrow afternoon. Anything you want to do in life, just do it. Because you'll either find out, you may find out you don't want to do it. Sometimes the best thing that happened to you, sometimes something not happened to you can be the best thing to happen to you. Yeah. Because you know, then you know this is not what I really want to do. So you don't carry on that what if, that what if, that what if, because that's, you know, not doing something can eat at you more than being rejected from or not at failure at something. So just do it, whatever it is, as long as it's not illegal, immoral, or unethical, I would say you try it, at least try it. You know, yeah. you may end up saying, you know, I really don't want to do this, but I learned something, I, I want to do something else, or, you know, I, I did better than I thought I would. So that would be my number one thing to to tell people. Because when you get older, you realize, like I said, time is more important than money. The older you get, the more that becomes true. Yeah, the more that becomes true. true. So do it. Start when you're young and doing it. Don't wait, you know, because, you know, because the time, you, you, the, the hourglass has started, whether you realize it or not. And you just don't know how much sand is left. 
That's the only thing you don't know. There is a line from a film from uh, uh it says no amount of money ever bought a second of time. So it it, it speaks to yeah. right to what you're saying. So Escalante, what I what we wanted to say is first and foremost, uh, formally from TTFT, thank you for responding to us. You didn't know us from Adam. You you came on the show. You buried with our first and only technical difficulties we've ever had, and we wish you nothing but success. Not only in your audition that you did today, but the ones that you have coming up. And again, the world needs more people like you to just just do it. Don't just because do it because you, th you think it's something you want to do. Do it for the human experience. So, Mr. Lundy, thank you for everything today. We're going to make you look good, but you already look even better. All right, my brother. Appreciate both of y'all, gentlemen. Thank, thank you very you, much. Sir. Have right, a good yes, night. Sir. Okay, so she has nearly three decades under her belt as a professional actor, work working frequently with Quentin Tarantino, who actually co-produced a film with her. By the way, she also writes, directs, and produces. A true steward of the craft of filmmaking, when she is not making movies, she teaches and coaches actors. She's also a published author of numerous novels, including a book that every actor should be reading called No, that's K-N-O-W, No Small Parts. Thank you very much for taking the time oh, to talk to us today. <laughs> In 2012, your uh, Laura, uh, Laura, Laura Lee Candy Fitzwillie. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. And Django Unchained sharing the screen with a plethora of Hollywood heavy hitters. How long were you on set for on that, and what was what was that experience like? I was on that movie for about five months, and it was the longest that I've been on a movie. I was I had the script way in advance because mm -hmm. Quentin used to send me all of his scripts to read, just to give notes and stuff. Yeah. And so when I got the script initially, I thought I thought that's what it was. I was here in New Orleans. Hadn't seen Quentin in a while. I get this script. I mean, we had talked, but I, you know, I get this script and I, and I just thought he wanted me to read it and give him notes. So I'm reading it and, and writing all over it and whatever. And, and um, it was a 200 plus page script. And so I am deep in, I'm like on page 90 when I read Laura Lee Candy Fitzwillie, a 40-ish attractive strawberry blonde I'm, I'm like, whoa, 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 what? <laughs> so I backed up 40-ish attractive strawberry blonde Southern Belle. Wait, what? And so that's when I really, and, and my name is, is very similar to the name. And, and yeah. I, yeah, I'm Laura Lynn Cayouette. That's Laura Lee Candy Fitzwillie. So I just was like, wow, I, is this for me? So I didn't, I didn't know if it was for me, but I had that script at least a year before we shot. And, and then I went through the audition process um, and got the part. And then I had about five months between the time I was given the part and the time that I had to show up for work. Uh, no, I'm sorry, three months. Three months before I got the part, something like that. So I had enough time to work on it for real, like I used to when I was in theater. I got to um, develop the character. I got to write a diary for her and, and create a photo album for her and um, you know, like a scrapbook. And I got to borrow a hoop skirt from the wardrobe department and walk around looking like an asshole in my city <laughs> with my friend Dana, who plays Cora in the movie. And Dana and I are walking in. I'm wearing my hoop skirt. She's wearing petticoats. I'm wearing a Saints t-shirt with my hoop skirt, you know. She's like wearing regular clothes and this petticoats. And 
we're walking along with her holding an umbrella over me as tour buses are passing. I'm like, I don't even want to know what they're making of this. I, I, yeah. I can't even imagine what they're thinking of. There goes the white chick in the hoop skirt with the same <laughs> shirt. Yeah, in, in Los <laughs> Angeles. An with no one even blinking an eye. Yeah, no one even blinking no an eye. Blink an eye in LA, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little odd, but I got to really prepare, like really, really prepare. And so that was months. And then I got to shoot for five months and be her for five months. And so it was, it was probably the most grueling experience of my entire career, but certainly the most rich and gave me an opportunity to do what I do well. Yeah. And you, and you did, you did, yes. that you did do well. <laughs> yes, you did. Now, let me ask you a question. Now, you're sitting at a table with Jamie Foxx, Christoph Waltz, Leonardo DiCaprio, Samuel L. Jackson, and Kerry Washington. Now, if you were to write a film, and of course you were in the lead and you needed a co-lead out of those people at that table, who would you choose as an actor yourself that you think you had the most chemistry with? Or you, what would you, who would you choose? Well, first of all, I think this is a kind of a cruel question because then I have to pick a favorite kind of thing. But, <laughs> and you're talking about an entire table of Academy Award winners and nominees, BAFTA yeah, winners, yeah, Emmy yeah, winners, yeah. Golden Globe winners. I mean, the this- egos is like, have a long way to fall right now. <laughs> They're all tuning in now. <laughs> you know, they're all people who in their own way are amazing. And and like Sam Jackson is the biggest box office of the entire history of cinema. Gary mm -hmm. Washington had a brand new TV show come out while we were shooting called Scandal, <laughs> you know? So like there was all kinds of stuff. These are amazing people, amazing people who are truly great at what they do. But um, I'm, I'm gonna give you two answers, the one that you'd expect and then the one that, that you're, you weren't ready for. I, I pick Leo because um, I really, really enjoyed working with him. I had actually known him when he was a 16 year old because oh, he, wow. he was represented by an agency where I had a summer job as a receptionist. And hmm. so he and his dad used to come in and wait in the waiting room and I would hang out in the waiting room because that's where I worked. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so they would hang out with me in the waiting room. And so I remember him as a, as a kid. And that really helped me with my preparation uh, to play his older sister. And yeah. um, when he showed up right away, but certainly as the days wore on and, and working on Quentin's movies, you have the longest days in the history of the world. Um, but working with him as the days wore on, it became very clear to me that he was like Chauvin Klein. He never let one millisecond of time go empty. Mm -hmm. He and Shirley MacLaine are the two only actors I've ever been so swept away by watching them live when we're supposed to be filming mm -hmm. that I forgot we were filming and I mean, at some point on Django, I'm at that table and I hear Quentin's voice going, Laura, Laura, you can say you're lying. And I was like, oh, right, I'm in this movie because I just got so. That's incredible. He was captivating. But the answer you're not ready for is that you left somebody off that table. Dennis Christopher. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is at the yeah. table. Oh, my. So I have been so blown away by since I was saw him as a kid in um, the Breaking Away movie. And mm -hmm. I will tell you that of everybody I was working with, he was the one that I was like, I can't believe I get to work with Dennis Christopher. 
<laughs> I couldn't wait to work with him. And, and we remain friends to this day, but um, I had met him one time at the Apple store and I, I'm not a fan person. I don't, I don't do the fan thing, but I like literally interrupted his business at the genius bar to say, pay attention to the fact that I'm madly in love with your work. You know, like I had to tell him, I had to say, you're amazing. I'm such a fan. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, Dennis Christopher, I've been a fan of since I was a kid and saw him in Breaking Away. I just thought he was a genius in that movie. He was so good. And so, and he's, he's like me, he's method trained. He's classically trained. He's theater trained. He's Shakespearean trained. He's, you know, he's hyper, hyper, hyper trained like me and, and trained in many of the same ways that I was trained. And he was the only other person at the table that was trained that way. Speaking of method trained, I know you leave the scene shortly before this happens, um, but what can you tell us about, I've heard that when Leonardo DiCaprio cut his hand, he kept performing. Can you speak on that at all? Well, that's all true. Everything you heard is true. Um, he, I, I was working that day, but I left right before that happened. And cause like I said, these days were super long mm -hmm. um, and I spent them in a corset. So uh, it was a lot with six pounds of hair on my head. And you know, it was, it was a lot. I, 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 re, I iced myself more in the time that I worked on that movie than in my entire career doing gymnastics and volleyball. Um, so I, I got a call saying, oh my God, you're not gonna believe what just happened. And so somebody called me from the set and told me um, the entire story. But I had already been watching the scene before I left. So I knew exactly which scene they were working on and exactly, I had been, I, you know, he's captivating. So I stayed and watched like three or four takes before I went home. But we shot that scene for like three weeks. You couldn't sit and watch all of it. You know, <laughs> like there's just too yeah. much. So at some point you had to say an embarrassment of riches, I'm going home. So, um, so I went home and I get this call saying, oh my God, you're not gonna believe what happened. And, and they describe pretty much what you see on the screen, which is that he, he had been slamming his hand on the table and each time he slammed it, it was making this little cocktail glass jump and, and move a little teeny tiny bit. And so at some point he slammed his hands down and it had moved under where he put his hand. And so he smashed it and it, um, it cut his hand and I believe was, was it 12 stitches, 16 stitches? It was a lot of stitches. I assumed that it was, it was like chalked up a little bit for like, it might've been like a scratch or a paper cut or oh, something no. like that, but they had to oh, make no. the story. That's, that's crazy. And he kept going. Lesser men and women would have certainly just fainted and been done. <laughs> okay. I mean, <laughs> like it, he cut, he gashed his hand. He gashed his hand and finished the scene. Spoiler alert, you go out in, I mean, this is amazing. I mean, like, it's probably one of the top 10 get your ass out of here scenes in a film ever. You go out in style and Django Unchained, literally blasted out by the, out of frame uh, by the title character played by Jamie Foxx. So let me ask you this. Uh, we like we like to teach people here at TTFT, you're a teacher, and there's practical effects and there's spe special effects. This seemed like a practical effect, but tell us, how was that shot pulled off? Well, Quentin, as far as I know, has never done a special effect. He only does practical effects. He does in camera work. And I like that. And I think most of us old schoolers do like that. Um, it was the way they would have done it in 1920. It was, um, 
<laughs> I had a rig. Just a horse and a rope. We're going go. three. Yeah. Three, two, pull it. <laughs> it was, no, it, it's like a cartoon. It's like Wiley e. Coyote. I have a, a rig on under my, you know, you know my uniform, my costume. Mm-hmm. I have a rig on that um, has a hook on the back mm-hmm. and the hook comes through the back of the dress and is got a hook to a rope and the rope goes up over a pulley and back to a man on a ladder. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Movie magic love. Yeah. <laughs> How many times did you have to do that? Please tell me it was not more than two or three times. How many they, times? I spent three weeks pulling her. <laughs> No, I did. I did it four times the first day. Oh, oh wow! Okay. Then two days later, when I was good and sore, they told me I had to do it two more times. <laughs> and then they wound up telling you we used the we used the first one. Oh, I am sure they used from the first. I am a hundred percent sure of that. I was when we were shooting the second day. I already knew this is showbiz, man. Just suck it up, up. Yeah. You know, like just do do the thing. Just do the do. And I also heard it was in the top three favorite moments of the film globally. And, you know, there are very few things that we agree on as a globe, and especially when it comes to humor (laughs) and violence. And yet globally, it was in the top three moments, whether you were in China or Iran or wherever you watched it. So that's pretty exciting. (laughs) How does that make you feel that that, people love watching you get shot the smithereens <laughs> like that's my favorite part when she yeah when they get class up out of there yeah. is it a compliment or i'm gonna tell you my brother is the one that put this in context for me when i did kill bill when i did kill bill i originally had a part that was about 15 pages and it was shot in china and i didn't get to do it and um so i ended up with the part that you see where i play rocket and mm-hmm and I don't die. And in the original part that I had had, I would die vaingloriously on scene. And um, so when my brother saw Kill Bill volume two, uh, he's a little brother, so he's designed to annoy me and pick on me. And I'm designed to annoy him and pick on him. And so he saw the movie and was like, yeah, yeah, it was good. But you know, you're nobody till you die in a Tarantino movie. (laughs) So, I feel like that the second that my death became like a big dang deal, um, that made me a big dang deal, you know? What was your, uh, what's your favorite memory from that set? You know, as you can imagine with so much time being put into it, I have literally hundreds of favorite memories of that set, including sitting around with all the uh, background people and all, you know, for hours a day and just shooting the shit with the locals and all that. You know, I have a lot of really fun, movie memories and a lot of movies a lot of memories that are just about being in my own neighborhood working with my own neighbors i would say the thing that stands out as unique to quentin and uh working with quentin is that between every take um not between every take but pretty much um between setups he will play music Uh, well the sound guy will play music and and lots of genres you know just like quentin is interested in a lot of movies he's also interested in a lot of music you probably can tell that from his soundtracks Mm -hmm. and so there's always a lot of music going on and you never know what the next song is going to be and and as i mentioned our days were very very long and so we would do things to entertain ourselves and each other and all of us are born entertainers so um 
I remember the day we were doing the table scene and it was going really long. And um, at some point they put on Bobby Brown's My Prerogative and Jamie got up and you know the balcony that went around Candyland? Yeah. And the inside, not the outside one, but the one on the inside. So he's dancing up on that balcony and the girls all had knew the video. So they're all doing the right dance in unison as Jamie, who is a professional singer is singing the song. That was fun to watch, but of the dancing singing. So the, the, the answer is dancing singing, but of the dancing and singing, my favorite dancing singing moment is that Sam Jackson is, it's the night that we're filming the funeral scene. Uh, coming back from the funeral. And so it's it's the middle of the night. It's, I don't know, three, four in the morning. And um, they had already blown up Candyland. And so we're only gonna be able to film in one direction because we can't show Candyland because it's already been blown up. And it actually, two days later, was still smoking. Mm -hmm. So um, there was a pyrotechnic issue, but, <laughs> but anyway, um, so, so, the Annabellum mansion is in the background smoking and blown up. And uh, Sam Jackson is dressed in his velvets. Um, he had those beautiful dress velvets because we're coming from the funeral. And the song that is played is Thriller. And Sam just starts doing the entire Thriller dance. Oh, wow. And with the background of the smoking antebellum mansion. And I was like, John Landis never had it so good. Like this is. Yeah. Oh, man. There was like maybe 20 of us in the whole world that got to see it. <laughs> that, okay. Well, I mean, I think that may answer the question, but you let us know. I was going to say before we move on, finally, is there anything else you'd like to share about the film that uh, that film that fans of the film may not know or just things that moments that they never would have saw? And I think you gave us one, but is there anything else you'd like to share? Well, I'll tell you something that y'all would never know, because why would you, is that this was a wonderful opportunity for all of us, and especially those of us who were the Southern locals, for us to dig into our own heritage and have really long, deep conversations about our different versions of our heritage. I am the descendant of slave owners, and, and, and it's possible I'm also the descendant of slaves. And uh, then many of the people that I was working with were certainly the descendants of slaves and the descendants of free people of color. And um, it gave us all this opportunity to look at our own history and our own family legacies and have open, grown-up discussions about all of it in the present tense, given the context of that we're all sitting around in corsets, you know? Wow. Yeah, it was, and that was really intense and, and important and meaningful. And I think the whole world might be better if we just would talk about the things that, that we don't talk about. Mm -hmm. That would have been amazing to be That's in that cool dialogue. That, that had, yeah, I had a conversation going behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Laura, thank you so much again. It was such a pleasure. We learned so much and had such an awesome time. Thank you for taking a chance on us, and we will do right by you. Thank you so much. 
Well, I really appreciate you guys, including me, and thank you so much. You had very interesting questions. I don't; uh, these were these were new ones for me. <laughs> yeah, very interesting answers. I appreciate, and I appreciate you taking so much time. I know we went way over the thirty to sixty minutes that I introduced this with. So, <laughs> thank you again, and you have an awesome day. Quentin Tarantino has said that he could not imagine making a movie without this guest, and IMDb actually reflects that perfectly. He has served as Tarantino's AD for Pulp Fiction, Jackie brown kill bill one and two inglorious bastards django unchained hateful eight and his latest once upon a time in hollywood he's been working as an assistant director for nearly three decades with 70 credits under his belt thank you very much to mr william clark for taking the time to talk with us today hey it's a pleasure fellas thanks for inviting me all right let's get down to the brass sack this year we're going to talk about django Unchained. This was shot in 2012 across California, Louisiana with a sprinkle of Wyoming. Could you please tell us about this masterpiece and this production, sir? Well, it was, you know, what a joy um, and a challenge. You know, it was, it was also a challenge, not only because of the multiple locations that you've mentioned, but the, uh, you know, the content, you know, it's, it's never it's never easy asking 150 people to go out into the field and pick cotton, uh, you know, with a bunch of other, you know, fellows riding horses around with shotguns, you know, recreating that type of, uh, that emotion to feel. First off, recreating the cotton was interesting. It was challenging to do it was actually soybeans. So the art department put all that cotton on all of those soybeans. Okay. And, uh, and I could, you just can't grow cotton that fast. It takes some time, you know, and there's not a lot of, not a lot of cotton uh, fields in the South anymore. Mm-hmm. So, but we, but uh, our production designer, Michael Riva did a lot of research. Wonderful man, uh, Michael Riva. And, uh, and he came up with the uh, idea of placing the cotton on soybean because the soy plant looks very similar to the cotton plant. So, we did that, and um, I mean, there was it was always something. There was there was challenge after challenge after challenge on that movie. We still managed to have an amazing time, but mm-hmm. you know, we, right from the get go, you know, we had challenges. You know, right in training, you know, because um, there was a lot of training. You know, to ride these horses uh, like you live on them it was hard, and and you know, and Christoph uh, Christoph Waltz. Uh, we had been studying dressage and, and in his first day of training, you know, got bucked, you know, off a horse. Yeah. And I saw it. it I, I had a question about that, actually. Did, did Jamie Foxx really give him a saddle with a seatbelt as like a, a feel better gift? I, I had not heard that. I don't know. I don't <laughs> okay, know so if you that's, can't confirm if nor that's deny. Okay. I, I can't confirm nor deny. Yeah. I can't okay, confirm fair. nor deny. It, it doesn't seem like a Jamie, you know, Jamie's, Jamie's more respectful than to make that kind of uh, painful joke, you know, cause, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe at the end, you know, maybe afterwards when it was all said and done, but, you know, um, certainly not before recovery or while we were shooting because Christoph had to work very hard and be very patient to heal in, in, in enough time to even get back on the horse. But that really, that, uh, a blessing in disguise is uh, that incident is where the dentist wagon came from. There was no wagon in the mm-hmm. original in the original piece. 
I was a uh, mean, you know, it was just, the, it was the day after um, Christoph's injury. And, uh, you know, Quentin and I were sitting in his office, you know, and we're, you know, he's not going to be, you know, he, he, the best, you know, I, I believe it was, uh, you know, we were trying to start shooting in December. You know, I can't recall the specifics. This may have been September, October. And, you know, and for a lot of the riding that needed to be done, you know, both he and Jamie needed, you know, not a couple of days on a horse, they need months on a horse, you know, to, to feel that natural. And, um, you know, so, and Christoph all of a sudden wasn't going to be able to even get on a horse, you know, until, it turned out to be until after the new year, but we didn't know exactly yet. And so I just was like, you know, you know, this may be stupid. I don't know. You know, I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. You know, what if, you know, he had a wagon, you know, what if, you know, like, you know, like those snake oil guys driving around all the time. And Quentin goes, let me think about that. And, you know, I was, I'm just like, oh, that was a dumb idea. I can't believe I even said that, you know, this hero riding around in a wagon. Oh, God. Oh, well, I said it, you know, what you're doing. And then, so the next day, Quentin comes in with, you know, a quentoglyphic sketch. You know, he's not, uh, he's not, he's not, you know, Picasso, or maybe he is a little Picasso. He's, he's not, Mo, you know, he's not Monet. He's not, it's not realistic. You know, it's, it's more surreal, his images. But he comes in with the surreal image of a dentist wagon with the big tooth on top. And, uh, and you know, we call over Michael and, and Michael Riva and, you know, he's like, what if we did this? You know, you know, he's a traveling dentist, so he has a chair in the back of the, and then we can put the dynamite in the tooth. What do you guys think? What do you think? And I'm like, that's hysterical you know just thinking about that tooth you know and there it is now that's the first image of the movie that was that was not the plan but you know sometimes as often happens in filmmaking and one of my favorite parts of the whole process is necessity creates invention and what you invent out of that necessity is often better than what you had originally fantasized about so this is one of those examples and I, there's several throughout that I've, you know, throughout my career where you've had to decide, you know, you can't afford it. You don't have time for it. You don't have whatever it is. You don't have, you know, whatever it is. And you have to figure out a solution. And even though you don't have all the pieces, so you take the pieces that you do have and you make something different. And sometimes it's better. Not always, you know, sometimes you have to make a sacrifice but often it's better. And that's, that's really when it's a really exciting process for me. Just hearing that story, I just, I'm thinking about this, the Christopher Reeves, that had to be so scary seeing him bucked off a horse like, Christoph, oh. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Superman, Yeah, it had to be so scary seeing that. So I can, I'm just happy that he was okay. I never even know, known that the production was halted to do that. But uh, thankful, thankfully, you and your quick thinking. But let me ask you this. That's There's a scene I want to ask about with the horses since you brought it up. The scene at the end with Jamie Foxx and he's making the horse dance. Did he really do that? Because you said he had Munster trained, or was that someone else where he's prancing on the horse? It's like a little, well, it's like he, a little. He apparently came with his own horse, right? Like he was, was he, 
Yeah, that was his own horse. Yeah. Oh, but well, then there you go. Then. He was well well versed in horse. <laughs> okay. And you know our guys, you know our guys, uh, Rusty Hendrickson and Jeff Dashnaw, they taught him how to do that, and they took the horse. Really, Jamie, you know, wanted to use his horse. He was a little familiar with his horse, but the horse wasn't movie trained. So Jamie allowed Rusty to take the horse, Rusty Henderson to take the horse. And so he and, and Rusty's amazing guys uh, started working with the horse and Jamie a little bit with a different horse. And then they brought the two back together. And, uh, and, and a lot of it was, a lot of it was Jamie's own horse. And I believe that was Jamie's own horse. And yeah, it, it, that was, yeah, I saw it. I saw it live. It, it, it really horse happened. Horse movie training. Mr. Ed will never work in this town again. Goodness gracious. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the final shootout of Django Unchained wasn't in the script. That was something where you guys, like, like you said, you, there was a, a problem, and out of that came creativity. Like The problem was we have now done so much in the movie, we need something that tops that for the climax. So it, it get, I mean, and this isn't just like something, let's just... Let's just shoot that. They're oh, talking no, about is... explosions, uh, multiple extras. Valentine's Day massacre almost very, yeah. So what, uh, I'm interested what goes through that internally for someone like you who's tasked with, okay, this is what we want to do. Uh, let's put it together. What, what happens in your mind before before you even begin to plan when, when something like that comes up? Uh, weeping, we, you know, weeping, uh, concerned about your job, you know, uh, end of career <laughs> um no it, it that was uh it it really it, what really caused it was the barn sequence you know the barn sequence was so dramatic and even shooting it was such a drain even just to shoot the thing um and it was such a uh, a poignant poignant and powerful thing that uh, what uh, Quentin, you know, was obviously the first to realize that what he had planned for the for the climax, the end of the movie, all of a sudden wasn't enough mm -hmm. because, you know, now everything is coming down from the barn as opposed to, you know, OK, taking a little dip with the Australians and then crescendoing again. Yeah. So so. uh you know, because really it was just a little speech on the front porch of the thing as they return from the funeral. He gives them each a gun and asks them to draw and they can't draw and he shoots them dead out there. And my biggest concern was the big night light exterior and creating fog and, and all of this stuff. You know, it was Bob's concerns were my biggest concerns about that scene. And, um, and you know, it was one morning at breakfast after a day or two after we uh, had finished shooting the uh, barn. And I can always tell, you know, you can tell when when something is on Quentin. He's a very expressive person. You know, he although he keeps his cards close to his vest, his face often gives away what's on his mind. And I saw just the way he was eating breakfast that, or not eating breakfast, that the breakfast was sitting in front of him and he wasn't eating that. I'm like, okay, something's going on. And I just, hey, dude, what's up? How's it going? I need to talk to you. Um, and he explained that the end of the movie wasn't big enough. 
he had to change the ending. He thinks he, you know, he, he told me the idea of putting on Calvin Candy suit. That was new, you know, that, 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 you know, so, so I'm, you know, just processing all of these things he's telling, because now I got to get Jamie into a fitting right away so they can reproduce that suit. So it fits him like it fits Leonardo DiCaprio because they're not the same people. You know, they're both incredibly handsome and thin and great in great shape, but they're not the same. So, you know, we got to go, I got to go through that whole process. And I know that suit was the, the piece de la resistance for Sharon Davis, our costume designer. So I'm thinking about that. And then, uh, you know, and it's got to be a shootout. And, all right. And so all the overseers that we had outside have to come back. All right, some of them aren't even here anymore. I got to start figuring out how to get these guys back, you know. And so I started working with Jimmy Scott's Polar line producer and Pilar and Stacy and Reggie uh, on all and Reggie Hudlin to get, you know, all of these things that we're talking about, which he is now going to go back. You know, we shot what we were shooting that day. Uh, and then over the weekend, he would rewrite that sequence. And so we would learn, you know, we were a couple of weeks away from it. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, wasn't like tomorrow, which had happened before uh on kill bill that that happened in bud's trailer it was a, a complete change you know dramatic uh one day but uh this we had a couple of weeks to 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 get our shit together but even as we were doing it it you know it wasn't enough you know we, we brought the overseers who we had had back and then he's like yeah and get me 10 others and so we brought 10 more overseers but then all of a sudden you know we're shooting it he's like i need more I need more. So I start dressing up the PAs. You know, I put, I'm an overseer. I'm one of the, I, I put on the cowboy suit. I'm the guy, I'm the first guy down those steps, you know, that's come down with the gun just because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just throwing people in and I'm like, just do what I do. Just do what I do. You know, we're, we're trying to get done. Just follow me. Just do what I do. And then, you know, when I put the gun down, you put the gun down. When I put the gun up, you put the gun up. And when I walk forward, you walk forward. And like, okay, you know, because everybody's nervous. They're not trying to be. <laughs> they were... I didn't sign up for this. This is <laughs> some extra like. Yeah, we, <laughs> we shot, you know, we shot, uh, I know we shot my, uh, my key PA, Miguel. We shot him two, three times. You know, we're just shooting people. We're just picking people to shoot, you know, just anybody we can to run in the building and then, you know, re redoing as many of the stunt guys as we can Chinese style. Cause we learned it in kill on kill bill. I mean, we killed all those crazy 88 five times over. I think the one we killed the most was Elvis. We killed him five times it was the, uh, the uh, fight. Uh, one of the fight team we he called Elvis named Elvis and we shaved his head. You know, he, he had, so for the first half of the scene, he has hair like Elvis. And by the end of the scene, his head is shaved because he's somebody else. Because we had to kill him again, you know. And that's <laughs> crazy. Forty-two, yeah, forty-four, crazy yeah. forty-four. <laughs> and so we took that model to the final shootout of, uh, you know, when he's shooting everybody before he gets trapped like a rat in, in the hallway, where we just keep bringing people in, bring as many people in, and then we needed more people again for when he comes out with his hands up. And that's where I was leading the posse down the steps with a nice big hat which I always love. Nothing makes my job easier than being on both sides. That is that is amazing. One of the most talked about scenes that people, they like it, but they don't really go into it and know what really happened is the dinner scene at the table when, of course, uh, Samuel Jackson character Stephen figures out that he won't that girl. 
He they ain't here for nobody. They want that girl. During that scene, Leonardo DiCaprio, he becomes so upset. And, you know, I, from what we've interviewed and read, he slammed his head, hand on that table so many times that the, the cup eventually moved to under his hand. And one night during production, he actually cut himself. Were you there? And could you tell us about that? Was there and him staying in character was the biggest thing that we were impressed by. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I was there. I was about five feet from him and um, and and saw exactly what he did, you know, what had happened. It was just a little cordial glass, you know, one of those little small glasses that you put your port or your sherry in mm -hmm. and they they were all there and and he you know goes through the the speech and you will and he bangs and he puts his hand right on the glass and i'm like because <gasps> i saw it you know i saw the hand go right down on the glass and i saw the glass break and i'm like oh too many crickets and he kept his hand down there and he just kept acting and then he brought it up <laughs> there he is bleeding and cut and then he goes i think i cut my hand <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like medic medic medic, Eric, oh, medic. and uh and yeah he, he he did and he continued right through i mean he's i knew from i, I the first time i had worked with leo was on on django on chain and uh and the first shot that we did with him was the introduction of his character. You know, we're on the back of his head is the Mandingos are fighting by the fireplace and the, mm. the, the French. Uh, yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a 7270 zoom, you know, big ass zoom, which only Bob can really do effectively and perfectly. And just about every, every time, I mean, I don't even want to get into how amazing Bob Richardson is as, you know, not only a, a, a cinematographer, but as an operator, he's the best mm -hmm. operator I've ever seen. There's, you know, it's, he's unbelievable. It's, it's really mind blowing. And uh, so we're doing that big snap zoom in and, you know, Leo comes walking over to Bob and they had known each other from Avatar and all, you know, and all the things of, you know, Scorsese and all that stuff. And he's, Hey, Bob, um, what do you, what is, what is you zooming to and from here? And I, it was, it was, it, I, I want to say, I don't know, I'd be making it up, but it was, it was a long, you know, it was a quite a big snap, big wide whole room into a, you know, a, not quite a Sergio, almost a Sergio Leone, but, you know, to here. And, um, and Leo just kind of shook his head. Okay. All right. And he's got that long cigarette holder and all that jazz and the first taking. Well, come on in. We got a good bit of fun going on here. And boom, snap in. And, you know, he held the signal. The, the, you can see, if you look again, the, uh, the, the end of the cigarette holder is a little bit uncomfortably close to his face because somehow he just knew where the end of the frame would be for the end of the cigarette. And he wanted to keep the shots ruined if the cigarette holder doesn't make the frame. And he knows it. And he puts it in exactly the right purpose on take one. You know, it was, and I was, and I'm like, okay, check the gate. You know, I made a joke, and I remember specifically, check the gate. We're moving on from that one because it was perfect. The first take of the first shot with Leonardo DiCaprio was perfect, and not by accident. It wasn't a fluke. You know, he knew what he was doing. Bob knew what he was doing. You know, Quentin designed the shot, and it was, it was magic. And, and that's just the way Leo is. I mean, Leo is really one of the most, certainly the most prepared actor. Uh, oh, you know, really, really digs deep and takes a deep bite. That's why he struggled with the Calvin character, 
Calvin Candy character because he was such a bad man. I was going to ask you about that because that's a perfect segue. Um, of course, DiCaprio was uneasy about the gratuitous racism and the char his character displays until it's written that Samuel Jackson pulled him aside. And uh, basically, Quentin Tarantino said that Calvin J. Candy is the only character he has ever created who he truly despises. I mean, like, truly, truly despises. What was the mo what was the atmosphere, atmosphere like on set? You mentioned earlier having these having the people there, you know, everyone dress up and this, that, and they recreating cotton and all this thing. What was, what, was it ever tense and you as an as an ad did you ever i'm sorry as an assistant director you're not an ad tarantino told you that what what what, what were you tasked with were you able to keep everyone positive were there days where it was harder than others what was it like yeah there, there certainly were days that were hard i remember the one day where they first arrive at uh at uh at uh, don johnson's house you know that that drive through the field uh, was a very uncomfortable day because we were not, you know, the weather wasn't cooperating. Um, we're in a field with, you know, all of all of these uh, background specialists, you know, dressed as slaves, behaving as slaves, and that's just, you know, and and the overseers behaving like overseers, and that's just hard to watch. You know, it's hard to watch in the movie, but you know, when you're standing there on the ground. And you're at, you know, and I got to ask, you know, honey, we, we, can you move to the next cotton bush over, please, and pick that cotton? You know, I mean, it, it's right. so we so we went to, you know, we went to great lengths to. Uh, I, I know I specifically did. I know the production specifically did. Um, to constantly try to remind everybody who was there how grateful we were for them being there. You know that, and and the Greenville scene was also very painful to shoot. You know the 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 people with the in the I mean to see that stuff and this is none of it was fake, right? You know yeah. it's not like we're making this shit up. You know this right. this is real stuff that you know Riva and his and his his team had had researched and 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 we had to put real people into those circumstances and it was not comfortable and it was not fun mm -hmm. and um, and. Fortunately, you know, all these people, this was in New Orleans at that time, were really, really happy to be there, mm -hmm. understood, seemed to understand what we were trying to recreate, and were appreciative to a certain extent for themselves to actually be here. You know, mm -hmm. their parents and their parents and their parents lived this, right. and I am here because of it. Yeah, I am a, I am a powerful person. And we, I, remind, I would do my best to remind them and then of course invite them to the party yeah yeah so because we are still every friday you know friday night it's still an important job what where are we going in new orleans it's not as challenging as it was oh yeah yeah but it, it was still it still was an important part and just to piggyback off what you, what you just said here is the challenges. I think you guys also had another challenge because I mean him talked about this last night, which was I've never once in my life laughed at anything racism related. But for some reason, you guys got a chuckle out of me when Jonah Hill came out of that mask and then the whole there everyone's there arguing about well your wife made him. She's not going to do this anymore. The one guy I'm like, wait a minute, this is the nicest mob I've ever seen in my life. It, it was funny. I chuckled. I was like, okay, they got me. That was excellent. So great job, to you guys, on that. Yeah, that you know that was that was all Quentin. Uh, you know, obviously that's Quentin's writing. Quentin's in the scene. You, you, he's got he's one of the guys. He he never takes the bag off his head, but he's on the horse and he's 
and you know what if you know we go next time we go full regalia you know that, that, that. <laughs> it's satire he's making fun of them <laughs> it's really it, it, that's that's the that's that's what makes that scene work. Obviously, it's very well written. Quentin can write comedy just as well as he can write drama. The guy is is it has a gift, right. and um, and and you know the fact that we're making fun of these ass backwards people, right? Gives it a little light. You know, it gives it a little light. And um, it, I'm really excited that it made the movie. The first version that I had saw. It didn't make it. It wasn't. It wasn't in in that cut. And uh, Quentin had showed me and Bobby, invited me over to the to the edit. Me and Bob over to the editing room together. And uh, Bob and I sat in you know office chairs and watched it on a big TV. And we both missed it. And he's like, "Yeah, you noticed. Yeah, of course we noticed. You know, we noticed everything that's not in the movie. <laughs> and uh, but this this we you know we really missed. You know, and I remember standing out in the driveway and you know and just kind of throwing ideas and, and you know before this and that and, you know and and then next time I saw it, Quentin had the brilliant idea of the, the flashback and all of that and and it really it was a in a perfect spot in the film to give right some, some, some tension relief yes yes what's your favorite memory from that production well I don't know I mean there's so many good memories and so many challenging memories but uh, you know, there's there's one thing that uh, I kind of love. It's, it's kind of a personal story. It, it doesn't really reflect. It, it reflects all in the film only in the uh, in the sense that um, the montage with all of the the way you set the table and how specific that was. Now we had, uh, I had brought a PA, oddly enough, who I had worked with on the Big Mama's House movie, Freddie Turner, who's now a, a, a photographer and an AD, a great AD on, in his own right. But uh, when we were shooting in December in Lone Pine, the opening scene, you know, with the, the I'm looking for Django. You're the one, you're the one I'm looking for. Yeah. You know, we were getting towards the end. That was very challenging to shoot. It was cold, you know, and on top of it, we're misting, you know, we, we, it's, we, it's below 32 degrees. And because we want the breath, we're, we had built misters in the forest, hidden in the trees. So water would be constantly to create the moisture. Mm -hmm. So there would be more breath to see in the coldness. So it was really uncomfortable. Yeah. And, uh, and we're, oh, yeah, that's because, you know the shot through the through the uh, uh, icicles. Yes. That, it, that was an that wasn't on our agenda. The misters created that ice, and Bob and I walked over and we're like, "Look at this! This is fucking wild!" And we brought Quentin over, and Quentin was like, "Yeah, we got to shoot that." But that was that was only created because of the misters we had put in the trees. Had the water had come together and started to drip off the leaves and would freeze and so it was it was a really challenging thing uh out there in Lone Pine it was uncomfortable you know all the you know Jamie's out there and the rest of the guys Sammy and all the other you know the the other guys that we had uh um uh, behaving as slaves in that chain gang uh were you know topless you know they're you know they're they were 
they were uncomfortable. They didn't Good. just act uncomfortable. They were uncomfortable. And my main man, Freddie, uh, had run to make a sandwich for one of the guys and inadvertently had ruined one of the shots. You know, just somebody had walked, you know, walked into the shot and that shot and Quentin was very upset because we're very, you know, very, it's like four o'clock in the morning. We're almost done. We're just trying, you know, we're, we don't want to come, you know, we're not coming back another day. It was, it was a stressful moment in time. And Quentin's like, I don't give a shit who it is. I, I want him fired. I want whomever, you know, I, I don't give a shit. I don't I care, you know, we got to get out of here. He was very upset. And, uh, and I, you know, I went and talked to, you know, I went, uh, you know, I put on a bit of a show largely for Quentin to, you know, feign uh, how upset I was. I was upset, but I know who Freddie is. I'm not, and I don't want to fire him. I'm going to find a way to not fire him. And, uh, and, you know, Freddie, had a bit of you know he was really worried he was very upset he had a very difficult night that night and the next day we come in and i'm like freddie you, you stay at base camp today That's all, you know, and uh, and quentin asked me did do you know did you find out who that was i'm like yeah I found it. did you fire him i said no i, I didn't fire him why not i'm like well quentin you know i i just really don't think it's the right thing you know i, I just uh I don't, you know, he, he had a moment. Uh, it was a mistake. And granted, he made a mistake. But uh, he's here for all of the right reasons. And he's the sweetest guy on the planet. You know, he's the size of a mountain, but he's, you know, but as, as hard as as soft as, as, a, as a teddy bear. Um, it's just, I, I just think it's the wrong decision. And I did not, I did not do what you asked. And I'm, I apologize. And, uh, and he's like, okay okay you know he begrudgingly agreed mm -hmm. and so you know months later we're shooting the uh you know we're about to get ready for the um the setting of the table which was a very important piece that you know the musical interlude the, again a breath but also the meticulousness with which these the people who worked in the house had to adhere by was an important message for the stupidity of the whole situation. You know, this is all dumb. Everything about this is dumb. Not only are the Mandingo fighting dumb, not only are the guys, you know, the, the, the guys, you know, getting a beer for winning the fight and not dying is dumb. You know, the, the people having to set the table for these idiots, you know, these candy family idiots in such a, a meticulous way is also dumb. But we had taken, you know, we kind of handpick the, the, those people who would be working inside of the house for that sequence. One of them, Belinda Wino, came back. She was an extra on Django Unchained and Quentin appreciated her work so much on that. She, he brought her back. She was holding the jelly beans in the hate plate. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I had charged Freddie with finding the right person, you know, getting the, so we, we hired a specialist, you know, to teach these four or five uh, specific people. And I charged Freddie with making sure that they trained and studied how to do this like they had done it every day for their whole lives since they were small children. Mm -hmm. And and Quentin was so, he was kind of nervous about it because, you know, 
it's just a weird thing. You know, it's a weird way to set a table in general and that it's so specific and so precise. And also, plus then you add the element of the camera to just move that precise so it looks a little bit even more precise. It was, and you know, these are extras ultimately, you know, these are background specialists who again have to step up and, you know, under hot lights with, you know, Quentin Tarantino staring at them, with, <laughs> you know, with his big Cherokee eyes, you know. And I charged Freddie with making sure that these people would be ready. And Quentin was so pleased with their work that he brought Freddie, you know, at the end of the scene, he was great. And he asked the crew to give Freddie a big round of applause for, uh, for the work he had done with these people in order to prepare that. And for me, it was a bit of a vindication for disregarding something that he had asked me to do. And for Freddie, it was, you know, he was, on, he was now where he was on the verge of tears and fear in December, in March, he's, he's king of the world. And, uh, and that's, that's one of my, uh, my favorite memories, and especially because of the content. You know, taking, yeah. I, I took Teddy, I took Freddie from Atlanta to Los Angeles to work on this movie because he was, you know, the, these are his parents, these are his, this is his family. You know, these mm -hmm. are his, his genealogy that had to suffer and endure this. And uh, he had done such a great job on uh, on uh, Big Mama's house. I, I wanted to reward him with this opportunity, and uh, and he deserved it. And then he to get the ovation from you know most importantly Quentin, but certainly the whole crew uh, for him and the people that he had worked so hard to train over the week to be so perfect. And we did it very quickly, and it was exactly what Quentin had wanted. And Freddie was a success and became uh, all of a sudden one of the MVPs of, of the picture was, uh, was a, a very proud moment for me. And That's he continues always, to make me proud. It's always nice when you take a risk and especially like a risk that involves a selfless act like that of pretty much disregarding what the boss is saying to save somebody's job. And then it ends up paying off like that big time where it worked out. I said, yeah, definitely. That's an amazing story. Yeah, that's just kind of what comes to mind. There's there's tons of things that were really remarkable about the whole movie. You know, I mean, there is so many great moments. I mean, Fox is uh, Jamie Fox is. God, I hate that guy. I mean, he can do anything. I mean, he can do anything, anything at all. I mean, it's it's you know he's a musician. I I'll never forget the time when a uh, uh, um. Uh, a thousand corpses, you know, I got a thousand corpses, a thousand coffins. Uh, I can, what's the name of the artist? I get to skate. Rick Ross was uh, visiting the set, was visiting the set. And, um, and he and Jamie go back to the trailer and they come back on written on a little, little, you know, the back of sides. And he's like, hey, 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 Clinton, will you listen to this? Uh, me and Rick, we're just working on this and, and we want to know what you think. And there it was. I got a thousand black corpses for a thousand black. And, uh, and, you know, Rick Ross just recites it to Quentin. I'm lucky enough to be there. And he and Jamie had just scribbled it out together in the trailer 10 minutes before. It's like, geez, is there anything you can't do? Is there anything? Anything? Oh my God. I got heart surgery tonight. We got to get out of here early, guys. <laughs> All right. Well, 
um, again, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. And before we let you go, is there any parting words that you want to leave the audience with? Be fearless. Be fearless, young filmmakers. We need you because film is never going anywhere. And one of you is the next Quentin Tarantino, the next Scorsese, the next, you know, Ron Shelton, you know, you know, that, that person, you might be the next person who inspires the person that's coming after you. So be fearless. That's an awesome outlet. Awesome. Mr. Clark, it was such a pleasure speaking with you today. And again, I will always tell people that you're the man that made some of my, my favorite, one of my favorite films ever happen with J Jackie Brown. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Fan service. Pleasure's Thank you so much. <laughs> pleasure's all mine. Thank you, guys. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for finding me. All right, ladies and gents and movie stints. That's never going to go down from season one. And with that being said, Peter Parker Post, he said that five times fast. All right, we're going to four improve. Man, this is where we tell you guys what we or... Yeah, just we, 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 French. We'll tell you what we would like to improve with the uh, film. No, don't speak French around me. It's insulting. Right. Well, fuck you, motherfucker. That's French. All right. So what we're going to be doing, my my honorable, not even honorable, what I would change about the film is something that he should love because he loves to just tell you how he hates how films are wrapped up. I mean, it seems like every film we do, whether it's they let the hero go, they keep the hero, they kill him, they save him, whatever they do, he just doesn't like it because he didn't write the film, whatever. But that being said, for this one, I hated the fact that they like i don't know why or how they did it but they ne they never say why jane i mean you show uh christoph waltz character dr king show showing jamie fox how to shoot at no point do we see him going to the uh smith and wesson international uh, invitational 2009 like i all these one-shot kills that were playing halo or something and i even let a lot of that ride and i was willing to let it ride because it was fantasy and satire and then at the end I, the most misplaced scene in the film remember we were out there like i'll tell you about that mm -hmm. they show the Django. you'll be the fastest sling in the way well you should have showed me that shit hour fucking go don't yeah. show me that shit now yeah, it wasn't the best flashback that you... It wasn't even a flashback. It was like... It's a scene. Yeah, they just added it in. Oh, remember oh, he's, when, he's alive. Yeah. No. So, yeah, that was that was my only one. That was my one point proof. All right. Now, please excuse me because I have a little bit of an essay here to make my point and make it, make it clear. And I want to be very careful with my words here. The N-word. This movie has more uses of it than any other movie. You could argue that it was in the name of historical authenticity or portraying the antagonists as despicable as they actually were. But my issue with it is kind of the same issue I take with, being, with it being used in songs. I don't say it. I don't feel comfortable saying it. I don't even feel comfortable with it being like an inner dialogue. But some of my favorite Kanye West songs, it, the, the N-word is prominent in the lyrics. So when I'm riding around and I'm and I'm when I'm if I'm singing it out loud, I just don't say it. But it doesn't stop the fact. It doesn't stop it from registering. Yeah, for like when I hear the song in my head, I'm hearing it in, in its full effect. Mm -hmm. So there, it's it's infecting my inner dialogue, my my inner vocabulary involuntarily. Tarantino's dialogue, like the N word, I think should be an issue across the board in in films because there's creative ways to to replace it with something and still have the same point made um but tarantino's dialogue is specifically problematic because there's a musical rhythm to his dialogue he writes things for the uh for for that effect of like eliciting some kind of response and usually it's you're just you're entertained and there's this um 
like all of his lines beg for quoting like all his dialogue it, it's it's things that you could uh you know when you just you 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 quote quentin tarantino films it's just what you do uh and he writes it for that way so even when someone like myself that makes a conscious decision to not quote it out loud it's still difficult to prevent it from echoing in my head so they um they were willing to excuse authenticity issues when it came to things like weapons being used that weren't invented yet or Stephen calling someone a motherfucker when the phrase didn't exist yet or people practically exploding in the blood burst when they get hit with a single bullet. So why not create a stand-in word for the N-word that we could all know what they mean but we don't have to have that specific actual word with its disturbing history echoing throughout our minds with every quote, uh, every quote-worthy moment in the movie. So that's my, that's that's the issue that I would take with the movie is, I mean, what even word? It, what word? The N word. I'm saying no, no. What word would you replace it with? It it uh, it could be it could be something ridiculous like, like in uh, a movie that would make us make people feel that you that's the word you knew you were talking about. Well, they would know. It how would though? Just... I'm saying how, like, because again, you have to understand. This isn't just a normal word. This word was created for hate, vitriol. I mean, put up a little uh, disclaimer in the beginning, uh, a, a, a title card. It says, you know, the, this specific word has a history to it. We don't want to, we don't want to put it out there any more than it already has been, especially in the way that it will be in this movie. For the sake of this narrative, uh, Kleenex means N-word. It would and never work. Scene. It would never work. They tried it with Uncle Tom's Cabin. They took the N word out of that, and the people revolted against it because it, certain words invoke certain emotions. There's no word. Listen, it was created, and there is no other word that can be used other than it. There's no other word. Not even Negro can be used. Not even which is Spanish word for black. I mean, I mean, it, 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 there's I mean, no other you, word. You can saw be used. my uh, my top five. Uh, you're gonna need a bigger boats. Mm -hmm. There were so many lines that I that are worthy of that <laughs> they list were deemed that useless. I just would not put on there because yeah. I, I can I can only like most Tarantino films I want to like I can I play them in my head and I can hear the dialogue with this it's just it's not you couldn't a, get your Jackie Brown on not even one time motherfucker like, yeah. motherfucker you. <laughs> yeah so that's that's the I, I totally get what you're saying I mean I I get the flip side of the argument completely that we don't want to whitewash history that is a that is a word it has been said it was used for those purposes and i don't know if, it, if the movie would have been as powerful if the the people that are getting black hey kleenex get your ass over here <laughs> kleenex david i'm shocked nothing that was just the best not thing syphilis not fucking uh, uh anthrax you went with kleenex yeah at least we'll get a sponsorship now Ding. <laughs> <laughs> kleenex the new n-word <laughs> got a little dirty secret well this will clean it right up. <laughs> All right, sir. God bless you. <laughs> Speaking of God bless you. All right. Let's move on to fucks given. <laughs> this is uh, this is what we thought of the movie. This is our this is our review. Before we give our review, let's hear what a former Twitter user Donald Trump had to say about the film upon its release. Django Unchained. The Django Unchained. He did. He did. I know. I know. Did not I know. Make it Unchained. It's it's the it's the most racist movie I've ever seen. It sucked. It's it's hugely racist. Huge. It's it's, it's huge. It might as well just released it in Russia. So with that being said, I already knew what I gave it. I gave it four and a half fucks. 
but because this motherfucker really said it was the worst ever and i'm completely on the opposite side of who this motherfucker is i gotta give that extra you know harvey weinstein bump and i'm gonna give this thing a five i really fucks with this film because again it's the same thing that we talk about with always sunny in philadelphia it's the same thing we talked about with coffee town certain uh, and with uh, even with uh as, as recently as tropic thunder certain films are time periodic films but we can they you can't be scared to use and talk about what's really going on, mm -hmm. and and so when when people say that you got to be all soft with it, you got to be all like no, they did it their way. It, it to me it echoed on the sense of what which I really hate now is what, how they censor comedians. Being a, a comic is almost uh, it's above being a pastor to me. Mm -hmm. You get to tell the unmitigated truth without me judging you, and I know how you said that you're truly in the side laughing at your own pain. So the way you get over your own pain is by making other people not have experience this. And you get to portray the truth however you want to. Mm -hmm. Like what you're actually showing doesn't have to be the the um, the like the truth on paper. Like it could be it could be something that makes you feel a certain way that gets you closer to what the truth is mm -hmm. uh, um, i give it five too because i wow. think that's whoa. uh whoa whoa i think it's a perfectly made film i think the the pacing is fantastic the slow motion the use of slow motion in some of the moments uh, normally i would complain about in a two hour and 45 minute movie like yeah, that didn't have to be slow motion we could have chopped it down a little Kill bit me! like perfect yeah perfect when the guys are walking to get her out of the box in oh, the yeah. Yard, oh yeah oh yeah it, it really it, it, it built the tension there so yeah i think and i love the fact that i can't remember who said it but somebody said something that that i think rings true for this movie is that um a movie doesn't owe reality anything mm. and that i think this and right up there with once upon a time in hollywood it's like fuck reality we started making movies because we we want that fantastical life it's art imitating life or it's life imitating art we have a responsibility and if you create something that brings somebody closer to a true sentiment then i don't care how you go about making that happen creatively if where i land after watching it is somewhere closer to a feeling uh, something that is true then show people getting blown up by a single bullet put it this way there's two ways to talk about race there's this way and you feel a certain way walking out of the film theater and then you can watch american history x and feel another way yeah both about race uh-huh yeah that's very true rotten tomatoes gave it a 87 percent with the critics 91 percent average audience score so it's high up there uh, pretty much across pretty much everybody with a um, a, a good working brain on their shoulders enjoyed this film. Well, there's one person that didn't. And moving on. <laughs> <laughs> we have moved on. As a country and as a show. We moved on. As a social network. So many things has, have moved on from that God. fucking yeah. sore. Yeah. All right. <laughs> let's get on to coming attractions. Uh, next week, uh, not next week, but the 25th, February 25th, this is going to be a very special episode. Um, we're going to be covering the new documentary, The Reunited, the Reunited States. Um, this is, we're going to break from our normal format that you're used to at TTFT. It's going to be more like a, a uh, extended discussion with the creators of the documentary. will be joining us for the entirety of the show. And... Um, so in lieu of that, be sure it, that that movie is available right now on Amazon Prime. So check it out so you can be ready for that episode on February 25th. 
And uh, I got you a hundred black coffins for a hundred bad men, a hundred black grace so I can lay their ass in. I need a hundred black preachers with a black sermon to tell from a hundred black Bibles while we send them all to hell. I need a hundred black coffins. Hundred black coffins. Hundred black coffins. I need a hundred black coffins. Lord! A hundred black, black coffins. coffins. Oh Lord! That's the fucking trailer. You don't want another one? No, I'm good on that. Why don't you subscribe? It'll last longer.